Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today we're talking to two people who want to lift tens of millions out of poverty by starting unusually ambitious special economic zones, which they call charter cities. Just before that, though, a few people this week have asked me how much editing we do on the show. As we've started doing more expansive and lengthy interviews, uh, Kieran has been uh, doing progressively more editing to help us avoid uh, repetition or, or lines of questioning that don't go anywhere, which I think has gone pretty well. We also let guests take time to think about their answer before they start talking. And for your benefit, we obviously uh, cut out those silences. So if you're worried that we seem uh, preternaturally quick on our feet, uh, be assured that we also have to stop and think from time to time. Uh, it's just that that does not make it into the final cut. Finally, uh, so guests can speak freely without having uh, any anxiety in the back of their mind. Uh, we let them cut out anything that they regret saying, uh, either because it's sensitive or, or just not the best presentation of what they actually believe. Second, I did an hour-long interview on a show called The Good Life with Andrew Lee. Uh, we decided to not put it out on this feed because we spent more time discussing kind of my life and history and general advice on how to succeed in life, rather than talking about uh, how to do good in your career specifically. But we'll stick up a link to that episode in the show notes so that you can listen to it uh, if you like. There's plenty of new things in there, even for regular listeners to this show, and I've mostly heard good feedback on it so far. All right, with those two things out of the way, here's Dr. Mark Luder, joined later in the episode by his new colleague, Tamara Winter. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Luder. Mark is the founder and executive director of the Center for Innovative Governance Research, a new nonprofit which is trying to foster the creation of charter cities. He has a PhD in economics from George Mason University, where he wrote his thesis about charter cities. And prior to launching the Center for Innovative Governance Research, Mark worked at an asset management firm, which coincidentally also made early stage investments in charter cities. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. I hope to talk about uh, you know, how to found new innovative uh, nonprofits like, like you're doing, and uh, also whether charter cities are actually a good idea. But first, for those who don't know, what, what are charter cities? So charter cities are new cities with new jurisdictions. Over the long run, the best way to improve uh, welfare, the, the, the determinant of economic outcomes is governance. And so many countries have poor governance and charter cities are basically a mechanism by which you can do very radical, very substantive improvements in governance in these countries by focusing on a geographic area, particularly one that does not have anybody living there where there are no special interests. You can get much deeper reforms than otherwise possible. People move to that area, you get a city, and right, the people get more wealthy there, and hopefully then you show the rest of the country as well as the surrounding region, hey, these reforms work, these are good policies, and they can be adopted and lead to good outcomes more generally. But how, how would the governance of these new cities uh, be, be different from everywhere else? There, there, there are a lot of different uh, governance indicators, but one of the most common ones is the World Bank Doing Business Index. And so if you look, for example, at sub-Saharan Africa, it takes on average 46% of per capita income just to legally register a business. And so the governance in a charter city would be different by making it much cheaper and easier to legally register a business, as well as to hire people, as well as to uh, build new buildings, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it would create an environment that fosters investment, that fosters job creation, that fosters trade, that lead to these, these good outcomes. Would 
these new charter cities be governed by other countries or by other businesses or just have a different legal arrangement with, with the same government as the country that they're in or, or any of the above? Broadly speaking, any of the above by the, the wide definition, which is a, a new city with a new jurisdiction that has a different set of business law, commercial law than the rest of the country. And so Paul Romer, when he originally proposed this idea, did propose that a guarantor country, a high income country, would administer the charter city in a low income country. What we do at the Center for Innovative Governance Research is focus not on that because we don't think that that's politically feasible, but focus on creating new jurisdictions that are governed in a way that the host country is is comfortable with. And so this might be a new sort of legal entity like nonprofit created. It could have the board of directors be represented from the UN, the World Bank, et cetera. It might work closely with the developer that is building out the infrastructure of the new city. But this is something that is very much going to emerge from the discussions with the, the host country, as well as our, our partners on the ground. Yeah. Why do you think charter cities are like a really important idea, like one of the most important things for you to be working on? So if we look back at the last, the greatest humanitarian miracle in the post-war era has been China, which lifted about 800 million people out of poverty. And what they did was urbanization combined with special economic zones. Uh, and so starting with Hong Kong and Taiwan, they basically looked and said, wait, Hong Kong's rich, Taiwan is rich, they're Chinese, we're Chinese, why are they doing well and we're starving? And so in 1980, they created four special economic zones. One was in Shenzhen, that was the biggest. The first year of its existence, the special economic zone in Shenzhen attracted over half of all foreign direct investment in all of China. This is a 30,000 person fishing village attracting more foreign direct investment than a country with 700 million people. And that basically spread. These areas were successful in 1984. They created some more. 1988, they created some more until they basically spread throughout the entire country. And now depending on what statistics you look like, some 90% of China is a special economic zone. And so this strategy of governance reforms combined with locating them in areas that don't have a lot of political involvement so you can get deeper reforms to test and basically to demonstrate their success is a proven effective mechanism for, for such reforms that can then lead to changing the long-term growth rate. So why is it an important problem? You still have billions of people living in poverty. And so to get them out of poverty uh, and to change the growth rate, Governance reforms is probably the single best way to do that. And charter cities are probably the best way to change the governance system in most of these countries. Yeah. Why is uh, charter cities the, the best way to, to, to shift governance? I guess most people trying to improve government in the developing world or indeed anywhere are not, are not trying to do it by founding new, new cities. Basically, it, it, it can be very difficult to change governance on a national level. And so what's known to economists as a logic of collective action, which is basically that there can be small groups of people that benefit from bad laws. And even if the net impact of those laws is negative, because the group that benefits from them is small, they will be able to keep the law enforced. And so a, a common example from the US is uh, sugar tariffs. And so the US has uh, cane sugar prices about twice as high as the rest of the world, um, because we have high tariffs, because there's a group of farmers in Florida that harvest cane sugar. And even though the net benefit from to the American consumer of these tariffs is is negative, because right, every person loses 5 to $10 a year based on these tariffs, but the farmers each gain a million dollars, let's say. And because of that, they're able to coordinate much more effectively and keep the tariff in place. And similarly, if you look at a, a lot of low-income countries, you have similar problems of political economy, where even though everybody agrees it would be better to make it easier to start a business, to legally register a business, 
then the existing businesses basically think, oh, well, this is more competition. Competition hurts my profit margins. And so let's prevent this. And you, you look at, for example, Egypt during the Arab Spring, everybody was very excited. And then sort of the outcome is it actually turns out that the military is in charge and controls everything in the entire economy. And, and that's not going to be the same in all countries, but it, 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 it shows that a lot of these governance reforms end up affecting the bottom line of some powerful interest group. And so one of the questions is, how do you implement good governance reforms is put them in a place that is not politically important, that will not impact the bottom line of these powerful interest groups. And then you're able to use that as a test ground to demonstrate the success of those reforms, improving the lives of the people who move there, as well as improving the lives of um, hopefully the rest of the country because they get spillover effects as well as the demonstration of those good policies. What was different about the policies in uh, China's special economic zone that, that really made them take off? And, and could it just be that China was poised to take off, off anyway? China certainly had a lot of factors. For example, there was a, a, a very rapidly urbanizing population. So there was a, a large labor force. They have a long history of statehood. So they basically understood what a state is and how it acts, which tends to be an indicator of uh, development potential. They had state capacity, so the state was actually able to do and accomplish things. And so I don't want to downplay those margins. Those were certainly important. But at the same time, these right China's had all of these qualities throughout history, and it did take off when it took off, in part because of these specific governance reforms. And so just looking at, right, like the to a certain extent, the randomized control trial of Shenzhen versus not Shenzhen. Shenzhen had those governance reforms, and they were able to develop very rapidly, in large part due to those reforms. In 1979, they did not get any foreign direct investment. When they made it legal to get foreign direct investment, they got a lot. And then if you see over time, basically, it was a constant back and forth between the, the, the city of Shenzhen. A lot of the reforms were initiated by the city. It wasn't um, Beijing coming and saying, do this. It was the locals as well as Hong Kong businessmen basically looking to offshore labor-intensive manufacturing to Shenzhen and working together to propose these reforms. And so over time, they also implemented labor reforms. They implemented land reforms. Uh, the first stock exchange in China was in Shenzhen. And so over the last 40 years, it has been one of the most innovative places in terms of governance by adopting these generally market-oriented reforms earlier than the rest of China, and as a result, gaining some of the growth. Of course, it also had a lot of advantages. It's close to, to Hong Kong, so there's sort of natural business ties there. It's in a delta that allows for easy exporting. But without those aspects, even right, if they had kept the same institutional state, it would not have become what it is today. Okay, so I've got a lot of uh, follow-up questions and potential question marks about, about this idea uh, to come later. But first, let's kind of just survey the case in favor of working on this problem. So as you, as you probably know, we kind of use this framework of scale, neglectedness, and tractability uh, to try to assess kind of the cost-effectiveness of, of working on a particular problem. Do you want to kind of uh, walk us through the yeah the scale, neglectedness, and tractability of this problem uh, and perhaps how that in, uh, informs your decision to, to work on it? Sure. So in terms of scale, uh, our goal at the center is to raise tens of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, which I think is realistic given the impact of, right, like you have 70 million people moving to cities annually. And so even if we're able to just capture a small percentage of them in charter cities, and if the charter cities are successful, then we are having a immense impact on global poverty. Uh, in terms of neglectedness, I think it's extremely neglected. Uh, so there has been a small community that has been interested in charter cities and related ideas for 10 years. Um, and there are a handful of other semi-related organizations, 
But I mean, total funding uh, for all organizations in this space, nonprofits, is probably under a million dollars annually. Total funding for the like for-profit companies is probably under uh, ten million dollars annually. Uh, so I think that it, right within the effective altruist framework, if we just take uh, open philanthropy, which has, I believe their endowment is 11 million. So spending 5% a year, right? They're spending basically uh, 500 million annually. And, and so, right, given that amount, the amount uh, of resources that are going to charter cities is quite small. Um, in terms of tractability, we have two projects that are in the pipeline and we expect to basically be at like four or five, six projects by the end of the year. Next year, we expect to be up to 10 projects. And, and what we mean by sort of, right, like incubating, the role we play is, 30,000 foot air support. So we want to put groups on the ground that are capable of executing and we give high level strategic advice and introductions, but effectively we would be able to step back and they would still be able to move forward. And so that's the metric we use. And I mean, right now we have two groups on the ground that both have a, I mean, if you're pessimistic, non-trivial, if you're optimistic, a like 60, 70% chance of actually building a charter city. So I think the the, the tractability is, is very high. And I think briefly to the, uh, I guess, cost effectiveness point in addition, two aspects. One, charter cities have a profit mechanism, right? If you build a charter city, the land will increase substantially in value that will be able to pay for all the infrastructure that creates this beneficial cycle. So once you get one charter city development, the developer might want to build more. Other people will see that successful and want to build them. So you basically have this built-in profit mechanism. So the actual sort of like charity cost is really just getting the cycle started. And then you, the profit motive kicks in. And so because of that, the, the cost effectiveness, I think, is quite high. The additional aspect that I think is important compared to a lot of traditional, especially in the economic development space that effective altruists focus on, is level versus growth. And so, for example, if you eliminate malaria in the world, that will have a substantial impact on people's well-being. But there isn't that much evidence that that will have a growth effect. And so if you're talking about, right, like taking people from $1,000 per capita to $10,000, what you need to do is raise the growth rate by 1%, 2 3% per year uh, continuously over a 30, 40, 50 year period. And there isn't that much evidence that reducing disease burden does that. There is a lot of evidence that improving governance does that. And so in terms of, right, like having these very long-term effects, the, the best long-term effect for raising people out of poverty is creating economic growth and governance is the best tool to do that. And I think charter cities are the best tool to improve governance. I'm not sure whether I would have recommended doing this, but have you tried to kind of estimate the cost effectiveness of uh, say you know, a year of your time working on this problem in terms of like how many people you get out of poverty per, per, per year and, and like how that might compare to other things like, you know, give always recommended charities? Yeah, so I have done like very, very preliminary stuff. We have a, a master's student who is going coming to work with us over the summer and his project is going to be to actually build out a case for charter cities within the effective altruist framework. The the basic challenge is, right, you have GiveWell's mechanisms of improving uh, what, what is the, the cost effectiveness of these different charities, but then translating that to economic growth requires a number of assumptions. So it's basically, right, just assuming my assumptions are correct, and I haven't actually like drawn out the assumptions anyway. My my feeling is that we are comparable with, with some of the most cost-effective charities, uh, just in terms, right, like my estimate is we can basically incubate a charter city for like a half million dollars. And given that, if you assume that, right, like what a charter city does is basically raises per capita income of, let's say, 100,000 people by one to two percent over a 30 year period, I think that is the extremely effective way to to alleviate poverty. 
Okay, so uh, seeding a, a charter city for half a million dollars—it yeah. uh, sounds sounds ambitious. Uh, what, what 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 does CIGR actually actually do that that could cause a charter city to appear for half a million dollars? Our, the sort of tagline for the center is building the ecosystem for charter cities, and what we see is that there are a number of groups that are interested in charter cities approaching these ideas from different angles. So to a certain extent, it's an idea whose time has come. So these these stakeholders include Silicon Valley. I've spoken to multiple unicorn founders who tell me I'm building up a war chest. So when I exit, I can build a charter city. You have policy experts, particularly development economists, where you have a large fraction of them are interested in charter cities from Paul Romer's work, but don't get career points for talking about them because there's no data set, so you can't actually publish. You have humanitarians, uh, particularly in Europe, who are trying to think about different ways to approach the refugee crisis because you see refugee camps that last for two, three generations, and they need to write like, how do you actually create something that's sustainable such that these camps are just not dependent on aid indefinitely? You have new city projects, mostly in the global South and Africa and Asia. You have dozens of new cities that are being built specifically, right, like we, we have three programs. So one is content. So we have a podcast, we have right a blog, we put out research, and then two, we do events. So with the events, what we do is basically try to bring these stakeholders together such that they can start talking and they can build uh, shared mental models of charter cities and potentially collaborate in the future. And then the third thing we do is collaboration, where we work with projects on the ground to actually basically understand what charter city is and get to work. And so the project that was currently most developed that we're working on is in Zambia. We're working with the company that's building it is called Tebe Investment Management. And the city itself is called Nakwashi. N-K-W-A-S-H-I. And they are building outside of Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia, a new city for 100,000 residents. It will also include a university, an industrial park, a business district. And they're interested in becoming a charter city, one, to increase economic activity, and then two, to act to a certain extent as a buffer um, against copper price fluctuations because the Zambian economy is very dependent on copper prices. And so Nakwashi wants to have an economy that is greater than uh, uh, simply a function of of copper prices. And so how we're working with them, I've known the CEO for about uh, two years. He messaged me on Facebook and he expressed interest in becoming a charter city. So we're working with them and the Zambian government to basically figure out what a charter city actually is. And that's relatively low resource cost because while we are um, the NGO that's presenting directly to the Zambian government, uh, a lot of the heavy lifting, right? They're telling us who to talk to. I'm not going to figure out Zambian politics. That's really complicated, but they understand it. Our costs are effectively one, identifying the group, two, making sure we have a sh- shared goal, and then three, traveling to the respective country every few months to work with them and the government to actually pass this. So what we're trying to do is basically come up with a scalable model that uh, we can help to incubate dozens of charter cities with the idea that even though all of the conversations in Zambia have been going extremely well at the same time, right, like politics in the US is unpredictable, like politics in Zambia is unpredictable, it's hard to know if um, right there's a change in political winds or something happens uh, that is just out of our control that makes it less likely. And so what we want to do is make sure, one, there are a lot of projects that are going on all over the world, and then two, also make the idea of charter cities more salient such that it makes all of those projects, all those conversations easier because no longer is it, oh, this is a crazy idea, but it's, oh, these other guys are doing it and making it such that it becomes 
much more within the realm of of political possibility rather than something that only countries in bad situations try. Why go with the term uh, charter cities? Because I think that that's very associated now in people's minds with kind of uh, economist Paul Romer's idea of uh, kind of one country voluntarily giving up sovereignty over some like unoccupied piece of land to another country's legal system, which was um, like a provocative and interesting idea, but also quite controversial. Whereas here, it sounds like you're talking about um, mostly about seeding special economic zones, which I think probably you, you could, it'd be easy to get more people on board with that. So I, there, there are several sub- substantive differences between charter cities and special economic zones. First, as a, as a like point of, I think, history, Paul Romer, in his initial TED Talk, he suggested that uh, high-income countries would act as a guarantor, which would, would effectively administer the city. Later, he appeared to go against that. So for example, when he was in Honduras, the initial legislation, uh, it was not clear that it required a guarantor country. Uh, and in subsequent talks, he appeared to move away from that. It was never like 100%. But two, the way we think of charter cities is as the next generation of special economic zones. So most special economic zones, they focus on a single industry. So maybe it's textile manufacturing, right? Like maybe it's 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 uh, call centers. Yeah. yeah. And in addition, the framing of special economic zones is countries have bodies of law and they cut around the edges and think, okay, on what margins can we improve this to make it a better place to do business? A charter city thinks, all right, if we're building a like commercial legal system from scratch, how can we make this the best place to do business? So I think the framing is quite important in that you're not focusing on a single industry. You're adopting this broad framework that is for a city that can allow the emergence of multiple industries that includes residential. And two, you're not cutting along the, the edges. You're You're really rethinking the, the, the institutional structure, the governance structure to get long-term growth rates. So what the, the, the way we think of this is like, how can we create the seeds for basically, right, 50-year success? So it, it, the, the question isn't in year three, are there five companies that are there? The question is like in year 50, is, it, is this a thriving city? And, and so I think because of that, what we're trying to do is really, right, like create this, this, this broad framework that once set up does not need and like continuous involvement, continuous action to lead to these long-term good outcomes. Uh, how how do these charter cities compare to like other attempts to do like innovative governance that I've heard people talk about, like seasteading or I guess like private cities, proprietary cities that I've heard mention of, or I guess just like uh, attempts to uh, have like separatist efforts on the part of cities or like devolve powers down to down to the city level rather than the rather than the national level. So seasteading is the idea of building new cities, filling cities on the ocean that have new legal institutions. Uh, and so it was founded in 2008 by Patrick Friedman and Wayne Gramlich. And a lot of their initial funding came from Peter Thiel. And uh, there's an excellent book, I believe it's called Seasteading by Joe Quirk and uh, Patrick Friedman. And um, Seasteading has been uh, one of the most, I think, influential ideas in Silicon Valley regarding the space of new cities. And private cities are, I think, just as they sound, you have a private developer that basically builds a city. And so examples, um, Jamshedpur in India is a, is a private city built by, I believe it was a Tata group, initially around a, a, a steel foundry, and then since evolving into a, a greater city. You don't have very many private cities historically. Most new city projects historically have been government funded. So like Brasilia, for example, more recently, uh, a lot of new city projects are private or public-private partnerships. There still are a few states that are building new cities themselves, but more 
more often they either work with companies and then also just because of the very rapid urbanization that's occurring in Africa and Asia, you have some real estate developers that see this as an opportunity to basically build satellite cities that house 100,000 plus residents. I know the seasteading folks, I like them a lot. A lot of their work has to a certain extent uh, helped frame my own thoughts and, and, and our own strategy. Uh, I think one of the, 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 the distinctions is it's much easier to build on land than on water. Um, <laughs> and so seasteading was originally founded in 2008. And at that time, I think that the common assumption, which at the time was correct, was that no country would really grant the new jurisdiction enough autonomy to really adopt some of these good reforms. And so it was heavily focused on sovereignty, which I don't think is particularly important for long-term economic outcomes. What you need is commercial law, not like criminal law, not international treaties. And then two, uh, and this is sort of indicative of the Silicon Valley mindset within which seasteading evolved, is I think they took a relatively I guess, aggressive posture. And I don't think it's actually necessarily correct within governance. Governance is actually really hard. Um, and um, I think it's important to work within existing institutions. When you build a new tech company, right, it's possible to say that because you're working within this institutional environment that allows for those projects to exist. You don't need to ask permission from HP to start Apple. But if you are trying to create a charter city, right, a special economic zone on steroids, if you're trying to improve governance, then, I mean, you do need to play nice. You can't be uh, taking pot shots at everybody and telling them how they're old and obsolete and you're going to do it much better than them. Governance is really hard. If it was easy, the world would be a lot richer. And so I think it's important to have a degree of humility as to some of the challenges. And then two, just right, like these are potential future colleagues. These are not competitors that you're, 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 you're working with these governments. And so I think understanding that framing is is important and the other one you mentioned was was private cities um, private cities like specifically don't have any degree of new jurisdiction and so there are a number of private cities but it's just like a large real estate project which i think is interesting but um, maybe they have some like local governance creating this like a specific hoa for that and so i think there's a lot of interesting things there but those aren't things that tend to lead to like changes in long-term economic outcomes and that's what we're interested in yeah so the seasteading thing was a is a a very provocative, interesting idea that was a, a bit out there, or always seemed a bit wild. And I guess it, it hasn't hasn't really happened, at least not yet. And I guess so with private cities, I think isn't the idea, uh, at least as I've heard it, that you'd have a private company that that owns the city and builds up all the infrastructure, like the you know electrical network, the the plumbing, all that kind of thing, and and the roads. And I think uh, part of the idea was that they would continue to own most of it and only rent it out, so that they would continue to have like a, a you know huge kind of equity or investment stake in the fact that this like city runs well, so that because they want it to go really well, so that people want to live there. Yeah, and I'm I'm quite sympathetic to that model. I mean, it's somewhat similar to a shopping mall in that a shopping mall provides all sorts of public goods, open spaces, security, lighting, uh, trash collection, etc. Why? Because they want to increase the values of their storefront. So private cities, in a certain extent, are a extension of Georgism, where basically, right, there is the the the, the income of the private city is rents is approximately right a land value tax, and so they're incentivized to provide all these public goods. And this is somewhat similar to our model. It's just that we increase the idea idea of public goods to also include governance because right no matter how good city administration is if you're in a country that 
requires 50% of per capita income to legally register a business, <laughs> then that, that's, that's not great. So how much is this a method for like experimenting with better governance and improving like how humans know how to govern themselves in general versus a, an effort primarily to kind of uh, bring countries that are, that are struggling kind of up to the frontier of, of how good governance is? And I guess I'm wondering, should people who aren't primarily focused on, you know, development and reducing poverty, uh, like how interested should, should they be in this idea? So I think charter cities are a uh, quite good way for experiments and also just in terms of total impact. We've decided to focus primarily on international development to start just because, right, like when you have a rapidly urbanizing population, there's a lot of people moving to new cities. And so new cities are being built versus if you look at the frontier countries, they are already relatively urbanized. So, right, attracting a population is, is tricky, but we are interested in pushing the frontier. So, for example, I'm um, working with Glenn Weil on, I think you, I guess you had him on recently, yeah. on the nonprofit that he founded as a result of the book, Radical Exchange. And one of the, the idea that most excites me in his book is the Harburger tax, which to me, right, like private property is a very foundational no notion of Western civilization. And this is the right, first substantive challenge to that notion that I've really ever seen. And so for the listeners who don't know, a Harburger tax is um, basically a tax on private property, where what you do is you're taxed at the you, you, you self-appraise the value of the property. So let's say you own commercial real estate. You report the value of that commercial real estate at, let's say, a million dollars. You are then taxed at that million dollar rate, which incentivizes you to lower the value of the appraised real estate. On the other hand, anybody can buy the real estate at that self-appraised value, which incentivizes you to push it higher. And the value behind a Harburger tax is it basically substantially lowers transaction costs in society because usually price formation takes a long time to discover there's a lot of negotiation involved and this effectively sets up a mechanism within which all prices for whatever set of goods the harbor tax applies to is known and it's possible to implement this in various phases in the u.s for example you could imagine right harbor tax for the spectrum or harbor tax for natural resources like oil but it's hard to really imagine it rolling out beyond that and at least in the short term, right? Like harbor taxes for commercial property or um, harbor taxes for residential property. But I think charter cities offer an opportunity within which it's possible to test some of these ideas that would restructure society, that would basically, right, like push the frontier of governance. And I'm quite interested in seeing how those happen. Uh, I see those as more second and third generation charter cities with the assumption that being that, right, if you're spending a few hundred million, a few billion dollars building out infrastructure, uh, you want to de-risk at every level and introducing new forms of social organization that you're not exactly sure how they work yeah. isn't the best thing to do when you do that, right? Like once you figure out all the other elements and once you have um, right, that institutional credibility, then let's figure out like, run some experiments with this and see if it works and if and, and then sort of implement it more, more widely. But until you get really the basics down, right, you don't want the first charter city to be a giant failure because then it substantially lowers the momentum. And once you have the momentum, once it's like, then, then you can have a few oh, proof of concept. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So early on, the first charter cities, you want to be like more like what we've already seen before with like special economic zones. So you can be kind of confident that they'll work out to some extent, or, you know, you'll be able to convince people to get them off the ground. And then having done that, uh, having built up the idea, then you can potentially start charter cities uh, where the key idea is to like experiment with a new form of governance, a new kind of voting or a new new economic policy that people haven't tried elsewhere. And and if it doesn't work out, then, well, at least you, then you haven't started a, a new city, but you haven't destroyed something that already existed. So yeah. that allows more flexibility. Yeah. Where does this idea fit into the political spectrum? Are there like groups that are particularly enthusiastic about it and, and groups that aren't? Or is it just like everyone might be interested in it? 
I, I think it's, it transcends traditional political divisions. For example, if you look at the right, which wants to restrict immigration, there's obviously these massive benefits, particularly to immigrants, of um, more open borders. Uh, and so a lot of people on the right understand that there are these benefits, but are worried about maybe long-term institutional stability or impacts on um, wages on the uh, lower income spectrum. And charter cities for them basically provide a way for them to be like, oh, here's a positive growth program for people in low income countries. At the same time, for for people on the left, there has historically been this natural, I guess, more universalism, this natural interest in uh, global poverty. And I think charter cities for them offer a reasonably cost effective mechanism that can uh, should be, in my opinion, at least part of a basket of approaches to help to uh, lower global poverty. Yeah, my impression is that it seems like there's more interest in this idea coming from kind of economists, uh, and I guess libertarians as well seem to be particularly keen on it. But I guess I'm, I'm not sure uh, why that is. Is there? Do you think there's any ideological reason why people on the left haven't shown as much interest, or is that just like it happened to begin in like a more libertarian social scene and it hasn't quite spread yet? So I think with libertarians, um, just sociologically, there's this extreme libertarian notion where if we create the right constitution, then sort of everything good happens. And one, I think that's inaccurate. For example, if you look at the, right, the, I like the U.S. Constitution, but if you compare the U.S. to any other country that was colonized by Anglo's, the outcomes are relatively similar. Right, U.S. on average has more free speech. We also have um, stronger gun right protections, but uh, standard of living is generally comparable to the U.S. and Canada. And Canada does not have the same constitutional history. And there is this belief that this rationally derived set of laws can create a perfect society combined with amongst at least a subpopulation of libertarians, the belief in the illegitimacy of the current U.S. government and a willingness to embrace relatively extreme alternative forms. And once you get closer to the center, you sort of, one, lose the belief that the U.S. government is illegitimate, and then two, also lose the sort of like, we can create the right society belief. Mm -hmm. And I think those combined to, um, if you look, for example, there is the Republic of Minerva and Operation Atlantis, Operation Atlantis, the funder, he escaped the, a Jew who escaped the Holocaust, he made a bunch of money, and he saw similar trends happening in the U.S., uh, and wanted to create a, a new society where that would basically be safe from these trends and uh, funded an attempt to do this in the Caribbean, which was unsuccessful. There was another attempt called the Republic of Minerva that was basically putting a bunch of sand on a reef to make it a new island and then claim it as a country that got run off by a gunboat from the Republic of Tonga. And this intellectual her history is sort of filtered down in, in libertarian circles that have been like very interested in like create new countries. I'm very self-consciously trying to move away from that aspect. I don't think you need a new country. And I don't think this, right, like we can rationally derive the rules of a just society from thinking about it. I think they're very much sort of empirical notions that arise through repeated interaction that we can adopt existing best practices in countries. But I do think on the far left, you actually do see a somewhat analogous trend. It might not be charter cities, but like the far left does have these certain utopian visions of right creating new societies, which you see most common in like communes and things like that. It's just that I think the far left puts perhaps less thought into right like scaling and into how that would interact with the global economy. And because of that, and also because of my own history in libertarianism, I'm, I'm more familiar with the sort of libertarian aspects of, of, of that history and how that translates to actually implementing charter cities on the ground.
I guess I'm not super familiar with like hard left politics, but when I was thinking about it, I couldn't see any reason why you couldn't create a charter city that was, you know, based on like a more leftist view of things. Because so I guess you gave examples of, you know, rent seeking economic, economic groups and how we could have like a more kind of free market uh, way of like making making places richer. But you could also think, uh, you know, the problem is like governments don't provide enough services or they don't provide services in the right way. So we're going to make a new city with like amazing public schools and like, you know, universal healthcare and all these other ideas. And we're going to show how great that works in this new place. So yeah, so and, and to clarify, I think markets generally work and sometimes they don't and then government should do that i think government is actually very important for long-term economic outcomes one of the reasons that china has been successful is because right their government has state capacity um and this is a growing strand of literature in economics basically looking at like is the government able to provide public goods and so one interesting example i took a bus several years ago from honduras to el salvador and the bus would only leave at 6 a.m why because it needed to cross the border uh basically go through this part of honduras uh, during the daytime, because it went through at night, there were literal highway bandits. And so, right, like you want a state that's able to make sure there's no highway bandits so you can <laughs> go along streets at night. Yeah. Um, and that's a very important thing for the state to do. And if you look at a lot of low-income countries, the state is unable to provide basic public goods. So one way to think about charter cities is to a certain extent, you're outsourcing state capacity. You're finding an actor that has the governance structure, that has the incentives set such that it can provide a lot of these public goods. Another interesting example is um, Liberia. During the Ebola crisis, there was a Firestone plantation um, rubber that had about 10,000 people. And they were effectively able to have nobody die. They had a few cases of Ebola, but nobody died because, right, these people had no training. It was just like, all right, we Googled what our best practice is. If somebody, we think somebody is sick, we quarantine them until they're okay. And, and they were able to do that. And, right, it's not technologically complicated. It's just I think, organizationally complicated. And if you have something that's effective, a state that's effective that can provide these public goods, that's very important. And so it's very important that the charter city is able to provide these public goods, as well as having, I think, a market that allows for this economic activity. At the same time, I might be wrong, right? And so actually the the, the legislation that we propose is a blank slate in commercial law, which would allow people to adopt a very different set of policies where you could see not just like redistributive policies, but also a set of government ownership. And I mean, Singapore, for example, actually the government, I believe it's the sovereign wealth fund has substantial ownership stakes in a lot of companies based in Singapore. So that is a model that can work in at least some specific contexts and might work in others. And while I have my own like set of policies that I think will be most successful, and those are the ones that I generally recommend charter city projects adopt, I could be wrong. And if other people want to try different sets of policies, right, like that's the test. Can you set up these sets of policies such that people want to live there, such that it raises the income of the people who do live there? And um, I think this offers a, a mechanism to do that and to figure out what makes the most sense on the ground. Okay, so you mentioned this uh, kind of scaling mechanism where I guess some organization or I guess possibly the government like buys up all of this land when there's like very little there. And then the hope is that by running it well and getting a lot of people to come in there and having kind of uh, economies of agglomeration, as, as you govern the city well and it grows, uh, the value of the land will become much higher and then you'll be able to sell off the land progressively to fund the growth of public services and plumbing and, all, and everything else that you need to, to make the city function. Are there historical examples of, of that working as like a primary funding mechanism? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I mean, you have some examples that are like semi-Georgist. So for example, in Hong Kong and in, in, in Singapore, the government does provide a lot of the housing in Singapore. I believe it's like 80%. Similarly in Dubai, 
right? Like all the land is basically owned by the royal family. Mm-hmm. And so you do have this acting to a certain extent as the funding mechanism. I think that would be a major funding mechanism. I'm not sure it'd be the only funding mechanism. You could also implement various taxes in terms of like, right, an income tax in terms of sales tax. And I I think it's the set of best practices for taxation is going to depend relatively heavily on the charter city. But I mean, just imagine, right, like if you bought land in Shenzhen 40 years ago, you would be retired and very, very wealthy. In Chicago, the first hundred years of its existence, land, land values increased about 30,000 fold, not like percent fold. So that's like Bitcoin level returns, mm-hmm. granted over a much longer time horizon, but still extremely substantive returns. Yeah. Do you want to fill in any any more of the of the history of, idea, of this idea? So I guess Paul, Paul Romo gave the, his famous Nobel Prize winning economist, gave this TED talk back in 2009 and got, got a lot of press attention. It was controversial. I guess the, the main criticism I recall hearing is that people thought that it sounded kind of neo-colonialist was, was the term. That it yep. was like, imagine, oh, you got this like country like India or it can't govern itself very well, so it should like give over this land to the British or America or something to, to run it. And yeah. I think this like smacked people people as like they, they just didn't like the like the sense of it. I guess I'm I'm not quite sure whether that whether that criticism entirely makes sense in as much as it's like voluntary to do it and like people it's like all their choice to move there. But I agree that there's something that's like a bit disturbing about it. But that sounds like you're just like running away from that side of things completely. Or it's like there's no changing of sovereignty here it's like it's a reboot of this idea yeah so just briefly on the neocolonialism uh so this was actually recently brought up by hunter nook who's the german special envoy to africa and he called it voluntary colonialism in a uh, article for the bbc and i think he has something similar to paul romer's conception where you would have the city be administered by a high-income country Uh, i imagine he's thinking probably germany i mean just on a practical level i actually don't think that's would be effective i don't think Many high-income countries have the administrative capacity to effectively one build a new city, right? Like even just if you imagine like the decision-making structure to hire a construction firm to build a new city, the U.S. for example, right? Like we could build the the Golden Gate Bridge in about three years, and then the on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge that took ten years, uh, and so the right, the state capacity of high-income countries has dropped substantially over the last. 30, 40 years. And then two, yeah, would run into all these political problems. And so we have quite a strong preference of working with local entrepreneurs who understand the governance, because if you're undertaking projects with 50-year time horizons, politics is very important. And having somebody who is seen as, right, like advancing the interests of the country, who's seen as part of it, who has his own interests there, his own family there, I think aligns the political incentives much better and is able to mute a lot of the criticisms of neocolonialism. With regards to the history of the idea, so basically Paul Romer 2009 gives a TED Talk. He has an opportunity to start a charter city in Madagascar. There's a very good Atlantic article on this. I believe it's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Solving Poverty. I'll stick a link to that. Yeah. And that is unsuccessful. There's a coup. The coup was probably due to the fact that Madagascar gave a large amount of land to Daewoo, which is a South Korean corporation. And there was a feeling of sort of, right, like, don't give land to foreign corporations. Uh, and so the president lost power and that didn't work. Paul Romer then went to Honduras. There, The legislation was passed there. There were at least two groups that I know of, Future Cities, Inc., which was Patry Friedman and MGK, which was Michael Strong. MGK signed a memorandum of understanding with the government of Honduras. Paul Romer got angry. The two sides of the story are actually, I don't want to get that deep into the <laughs> Yeah, movies. there's no need for that. Um, but there was kind of a falling out or something yeah. between a bunch of different groups there. Yeah. And then the Honduran Supreme Court ruled it 
uh, unconstitutional. Subsequently, the, a similar law was passed and the Honduran Supreme Court ruled it constitutional. There was also a change in the Supreme Court where all the judges who ruled against the first one got fired. Huh. Um, it's coincidence. Yeah, this was actually probably a coincidence because similar to the US, there's a left-right split. Mm. And the Honduran media generally reports that the firing was due to um, a police corruption case. And huh. I like I lived in Honduras for six months and I actually don't think there was enough political capital to fire people over the charter the cities. Charter city. mm-hmm. um, it was a relatively like niche opinion interest. And the Honduran charter cities legislation is still on the books. And there are recently rumors that thing projects are finally moving forward. There have been rumors before. These rumors seem a lot more real. Um, we recently re- released a white paper on Honduran charter cities, framing it within the migration context, right? Like the U.S. has spent about $2.1 billion over the last three years trying to develop Central America. And you can build the first phase of a charter city for 100 to 200 million and trying to sort of lay that out like, hey, guys, it's not that complicated to go do it. Those are the two main ones. Basically, after Paul Romer um, had the falling out in Honduras, he stopped publicly speaking on it. And then he went, he went on to the World Bank, right, for a while. And now he's, yeah, I guess he's uh, back so, doing research. Yeah. What happened was like he left in uh, 2011, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And then was at NYU, founded the Marin Institute, started focusing on urban issues more broadly mm. and would mention charter cities occasionally in interviews. Um, then went to the World Bank as chief economist, then left the World Bank <laughs> <laughs> um, and then won the Nobel Prize. And now he's, I don't know, doing whatever Nobel Prize winners do. It's, it's been a busy decade for him, but yeah. he, but he's moved on to, on to, on to new pastures. Yeah. So in these countries that have serious governance issues, I guess Honduras has a massive crime and um, corruption problems. Uh, I know less about Madagascar. But... Uh, why would these governments uh, hand like it, they have reasons to they're trying to like exploit potentially their population to, to extract resources or the government is like not uh, not following their interests all that well why would they then hand over a particular amount of land like giving up their ability to kind of extract money and power from them so I think I don't I would not think about like right I mean governments do act in a certain sense but also governments are made up of a bunch of different agents that have different motivations and different interests and so um again I'm less familiar with the specific history of Madagascar my understanding high level is basically right Paul Romer gives this TED talk he's famous and the president sees it and likes it and invites mm-hmm. him. Uh, Honduras is a little bit different. Honduras had just gone through a constitutional crisis in 2009, I believe, where the previous president, who was uh, a leftist and allied a little bit with Chavez, there was like, I mean, you can call it a coup, you can call it not a coup. He wanted to run for a second term, which is against the constitution and right, like all of these political struggles. So he was removed from power. At the time, the murder rate in Honduras was, I think, number one in the world. It's still quite high, but it's dropped substantially since then. So you basically had this political crisis combined with this what i don't know violence crisis and then the last aspect was basically you had the right leadership in place at the right time when if you talk to the hondurans right they had ideas similar to this prior to paul romer and paul romer was brought in um, partially to basically help push an idea they already had through and what we're trying to do is to eliminate some of that randomness to one frame these ideas in a manner that's much more palatable so you don't have Right, these sort of arbitrary circumstances leading to charter cities where like severe political crisis or TED talk, mm. but uh, make it such that this is a it's more systematic considered yeah, decision or something. Yeah, broad solution that applies to a wide variety of countries, any country that's dealing with rapid urbanization, that's dealing with poverty, that's having trouble implementing the sets of reforms they like, that this is a potential solution uh, for them. 
So it seems like this kind of uh, improvement in governance would be more valuable kind of the more dysfunctional the country is. But on the other hand, of course, like a country that's really dysfunctional is not going to potentially be able to manage the transition and, or won't be interested in doing it. Yeah. So I guess, uh, how, yeah, what kind of process uh, are you going about selecting uh, places or like do you think should uh, like countries should take in deciding whether to pursue this and to, whether to be among the pioneers? So the sort of ideal country, I think, is about 1,000 to 5,000 per capita GDP. If it's under 1,000, it's probably going to be a little bit too dysfunctional to um, be able to adopt. Um, so, so like one of the things is right, like well-governed countries do not need charter cities because they're already well, relatively well-governed, right? There's still some aspects that chart beneficial aspects that charter cities would provide, but they're not as important. And poorly governed countries, it's it's more urgent, but then effectively figuring out how to walk this tightrope where, right, like, how do you get a country that's not very well governed to adopt this, like, pocket of good governance? Right. And that's really the tightrope to walk that we're, I think, doing a reasonably good job of walking and, and, and figuring out. And as to, like, more specifically, what are the important qualifications to consider when thinking about charter cities, what countries, right? You need a minimum level of commitment ability. So for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the government effectively only controls the capital, Kinshasa, that is probably not a good candidate. Uh, if you have a country that's relatively functioning, that's on a upward growth path, for example, South Korea, which is already a high income country, there's probably not a lot of need for a charter city. Middle income countries that have hit the middle income trap like Mexico, there's potential benefit, though it's not as strong as a benefit would be in Honduras, which is still, uh, I think actually technically might be a middle-income country, but their per capita GDP is like 4x lower than Mexico. And similarly, there are other projects. We're relatively opportunistic about where we look. So the model we have adopted is basically looking for strong partners on the ground. So in Zambia, it's a new city development. We are in early conversations with the largest urban developer in Africa. Um, and they've expressed interest in turning some of their projects into a charter city. And so hopefully they decide to like start taking meaningful steps at some point this year. And then we're putting out a white paper looking at Venezuela with the assumption being that, okay, assuming this transfer of power does go through, they're basically looking at what is a wholesale development plan, like right rejuvenation plan for Venezuela. And they'd be willing to adopt ideas that otherwise might they not might not be willing to adopt. And if you can get charter cities to be part of the conversation, there's about 3 million um, Venezuelan refugees, and most of them are going to move back to their previous residences, but some of them will not. So that offers the the opportunity there. We have interests in specific, like, right, a specific profile of a country, but the more definitive criteria is like who is on the ground and how can they do that? Yeah, so I'm surprised you bring up Venezuela because I guess I was thinking, um, given the experience in, in these uh, in these other countries, uh, you might uh, want to go to a country where there's kind of a bipartisan consensus or bipartisan interest in, in pursuing this. And, and I'm guessing that so if, if you get, yeah, if um, Maduro uh, gets removed and then someone else comes in who might be interested in this, that's like a very fragile situation where easily it could like the reverse could happen and then, and then you get kicked out. I actually don't think that Venezuela is that fragile. Hmm. Um, I mean, now it obviously is, but my guess is right, like, if they form a new government, then I think there will be a reasonably rapid shift where within two years, that government, so long as it can provide like some semblance of stability and economic prosperity, right? Like Venezuela is pretty close to the bottom. So like, all right, no more hyperinflation. <laughs> like you don't even need wage growth. Just yeah. like money that depreciates 50% per year rather than like 500,000%. And my guess is that if you're able to deliver that over a year, two years, you'll basically have a new political consensus. So I think that right, like that is at an inflection point where you could see that shift very substantially in terms of the the outcomes. I mean, it's still obviously risky. Like one, like Maduro might stay in power, in which case our efforts are not going to go anywhere. Or 
too, right? Like there could be this like transition and then detransition, but right, like that's that's like we want basically bipartisan consensus in all the places that we undertake this, but sometimes that's not going to be feasible for one reason or another. And um, we see it as right, like worthwhile basically planting the seed and trying to get it started. Are there any other countries kind of on the list that are uh, you know, poor enough that this is really useful, but like stable enough that it, that it could actually function? I guess like Ethiopia jumps to mind, possibly a Bangladesh. Uh, yeah. Um, Bangladesh, I'd, I'd like to start conversations in Bangladesh. I think that they have a very good special economic zone regime. I'm less familiar with a lot of the like specific politics. Um, right now we're in Africa and Latin America. We'd like to expand to Asia. Ethiopia is would be, I think, quite interesting. Like the, all their political moves over the last year have been very positive in terms of moving to a multi-party democracy, um, peace with Eritrea. They have an effective special economic zone program that might be expanded. I'd be interested to start conversations on charter cities there. Rwanda is another interesting example. Hmm. They actually probably don't need them because in the words of one of the advisors to the government, if we there is a good policy, we'll just pass it. Yeah. <laughs> like we don't need a charter city to, to try that out. Um, I think Kenya is another good example of a potential place for a charter city. I mean, basically what you want, yeah, is is I think a lot of um, sub-Saharan Africa would be good. Latin America is actually more urbanized than Europe. And point of note is that urbanization statistics are self-reported and also self-defined. So it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it's still a like metric. So it's it's a little bit trickier in Latin America than in Africa. I think Africa is urbanizing very rapidly. Most of the governance is 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 is, is quite poor. And so you have this like very young population that if you can unleash them, I mean, one, you right, just the obvious humanitarian benefit of making lives better for them. And then two, the sort of global benefit of you have a bunch of like young, smart people that can now contribute to the global economy. Uh, that's that's the big one. And yeah, we, we're interested in, in getting into Asia, but haven't taken any concrete steps there at this point. What, what do you think are the, are the biggest weaknesses of, of this idea? Uh, what, what worries you the most? So before what worries me the most, the most common criticism is just the ability to create one the political feasibility. In addition, there is the commitment ability of the host country. If you get a successful charter city, then won't the host country just come and take it? There's the long-term criticism of, all right, if you like charter cities moving towards government as a service model. And if you look at the countries that have fully embraced that, like Dubai, poor people are not treated very well. So with the right political feasibility question, I think it's generally overstated. Uh, 10 years ago, that probably would have been accurate, but countries have become much more willing to accept these special economic zones on steroids, charter cities, than they would have been 10 years ago, based on my conversations with governments and the number of people who have reached out to us who are engaged in similar projects. Uh, It just seems very clear that charter cities are a very real political possibility. Another question is basically, all right, what is right, right, the if you have a successful charter city, why won't the government just come in and confiscate it? Um, which is a possibility. There are several ways to mitigate against that risk. Uh, one is in terms of basically signing treaties such that if the country reneges on the law, then you can confiscate overseas assets. This is typically used in cases with natural resources. Um, most countries in the world are signatories to the New York Convention of 1958. And what this means is that if a country basically confiscates your assets as a like company and you win in court, you can confiscate their overseas assets to sell to recoup the costs. And so if you build a oil refinery and then the country comes and takes it, then you can, if you win the lawsuit, then you can go and take their ships overseas or whatever to pay yourself back. Um, this has been used successfully several times. So if you, you create the charter city in the correct manner, then this would be an asset that you could be recompensated for if it's if it's confiscated. So if it's expropriated, so that allows for protection against this expropriation. Three, just 
the new city projects are being built. There's lots of these large right, real estate projects, these mega infrastructure projects that are being built. So there are entrepreneurs who think that this is this 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 is right. While a concern is not sufficient of a concern to justify not building a new city. And then three, you want to right like align the interest of the host country with the interest of the charter city. So you want to create a lot of jobs. You want to, I mean, educate people. You want to have these positive spillover effects, such that the people of the host country and their leaders see this as something to be proud of, not something to limit or restrict. And then the third aspect, um, this is to me the one I'm most worried about. So Dubai, for example, right? You can't beg. Um, so if you right like start begging they'll just put you on a plane and ship you home and there just isn't much of a right there's a welfare state for the emiratis but if you're not emirati then welfare state is we're going to send you home and you're on your own and i mean this works in like right if you have a handful of them but if you have a lot of them then there is probably a portion of the population however you want to define it that either for genetic or very like deep-seated cultural reasons is just like is not productive and I think the right thing to do is to create a system such that they can still live decent lives. But once you start removing this old idea of citizenship and of nationality of this sort of right, like collective body that has certain certain benefits, but also these like unrenounceable obligations, and you move towards this very explicit government as a service, governance as a service model. How do you provide for redistribution, I guess? Basically. Because yeah, people um, just, would just leave, I guess, if yeah, they get kicked out. Yeah. And so you have this right, like a relatively small percentage of the population that just might get, right, like see substantial drop in their standard of living because they're, they're, they're relatively unproductive. So, so you've got some special economic zone. It's still the sovereignty is still the original country, but it's a company, I guess, that, that owns it and is developing it and gradually selling off bits of it and like taking tax revenue potentially, or I guess taking rents and so on. There's going to be different structures of governance. So yeah, it, it will be the way, the way that we're proposing it, which I think is going to be the dominant model is it's still under the, the sovereignty of the host country, the sovereign, the constitution, international treaties, criminal law, and it will have this special administrative jurisdiction that will basically have power for commercial law. Um, the special administrative jurisdiction we're proposing be an independent body and think of this like a new government commission. We're proposing that this be basically firewalled from the rest of the government to try to get away from the legacy problems as much as possible to be able to implement these best practices of reforms. We are also proposing that this administrative body work closely with the developer and usually it's going to be one developer with the idea being that right like if a developer is building all of it then they are they are incentivized to provide these public goods when if you have a number of different developers then the collective action problem becomes more and more difficult and so this um, administrative body would work closely with the de this developer to basically figure out what is the proper set of public goods. We also generally encourage the developer to keep a long-term interest in the land. So by leasing it rather than outright selling it, because you want them to be there in 20 years, maybe like right for the first 20 years, it's more residential. And then in 20 years, you, you want to, instead of having like single family homes, you want to start building apartments or right, like whatever that is. So basically trying to keep the governance structure intact to continue to align the, the, the interests of the residents and like businesses and potential residents and potential businesses with the interests of the governing body. In practice, I think we're going to see a like reasonably wide variety of these governance structures and how they work. Some people think of right, like there is some like Plato's Republic. There is this ideal form of governance, and 
once we get that, everything will be okay. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it, right? Like the government of France in 1938, the optimal government of France in 1938 is very different from the optimal government of France today, right? In 1938, there's this existential threat on the border that they need to fight. Today, they don't have that existential threat. There's a whole different host of problems. And so similarly, uh, optimal governance set, I think, is very dependent on conditions and on context. And depending on the conditions and context, I suspect that in different scenarios, we're going to see different governance institutions emerge. What we see as key is basically aligning the interests of the governing body with the interests of the like residents and potential residents and businesses and potential businesses. And if you get that right incentive feedback loop right, then almost everything else is downstream from that. There's been lots of like special economic zones with like different policies uh, that, that countries have tried. But I guess handing it over to a private entity uh, to, to, to that extent, I guess one thing is that it like plays into people's like concerns about business power and yeah, like handing over anything to like a profit uh, motivated organization, I think tends to like freak people out. And then there's also just, it's a huge admission of failure, uh, I guess, by the government to be like, we are so incompetent that like the only way we can like get this to work is to basically hand over a significant amount, like most of the control over the, over the city. I, I guess are those the kinds of reasons that you think that this hasn't happened already like it's 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 an idea that's been around but well, so it hasn't happened very much let me let me I, there's there's two separate I, i'd like to push back a little bit one different from like the developer and the governance body like those will be two different institutions and what we propose like working closely with it's probably not going to be legal control i don't think legal control of the right like the private entity having legal like for-profit entity having legal control over governance is something that would fly i'd like to see it tested out a few times i think it might work but it's right like i'm somewhat conservative in this manner like don't test new governance systems <laughs> like you, you want to test them but like right don't make very strong claims about the functioning of governance systems before you see them tested and then two i think it it might lead into certain fears but if you look at places that have to a certain extent like somewhat analogous governance structures like disney world i mean disney world works like reasonably well people don't really live in disney world though no but there still are a lot of like problems that could potentially arise i mean just in terms of disney world has a degree of right like it's 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 a special jurisdiction to a certain extent from the state of florida and so they have different building codes and all of these things and generally i think disney world is probably much safer than the rest of florida that has built (laughs) in because if disney screws up then they'll lose a boatload of money and so i think having that incentive structure should probably have hopefully similar outcomes you you do want to basically have some form of oversight to make sure that there aren't there, there aren't abuses i think for the first generation of residents a pretty strong form of oversight is just like whether they want to move there or not after then you have a second generation of residents where they're more captive and you probably want to transition to slightly different structures once it's like stable and reached equilibrium um and what that looks like i don't know exactly i think that's again going to be country dependent and context dependent I guess this is a concern that people have that I suppose to begin with when you're building it that you have to make a very appealing like value proposition to get anyone to move there in the first place but then I guess once you've got network effects once people have like made investments and living in that location then kind of the organization that that owns it or runs it has like a lot of market power potentially a lot of like ability a lot of the discretion that uh, before people might might leave and so they could potentially exploit the next generation and I guess this is kind of people would think that you would gradually have to move away from having a CEO to having more like an elected government in order to like prevent that kind of exploitation yeah and I'm, I'm I'm I'm, I'm I'm quite open to that. I think realistically, most of these projects are going to have basically a transition period where they say like in 50 or 100 years or whatever it is, we're going to transition to this new form of government. Um, I think initially, right, like if you're trying to attract uh, like billions of dollars worth of investment, then you need you can't have the first 10 residents have decision making rights just by voting. 
on how that money is spent. But after it's basically reached peak and we reached equilibrium, you probably want to transition to a more traditional form of government. And two, you, you previously you asked uh, basically like, is this a admission of failure by the host countries? I, I, I wouldn't say it's that. I, right? Like countries tend to have the policies, the institutions they have because of like very particular legacies, um, historical legacies, and. These legacies often involve, I mean, to a certain extent, like horrific crimes, just like colonialism, and like slaughter of indigenous populations, and then just sort of like bad luck and bad circumstances. And so I think there is a general awareness of the need to improve, and charter cities are an avenue that allows for this improvement, right? Like you're not going to get charter cities legislation passed if it's not already a policy set that the political leaders of that country want to see implemented. And so I, I wouldn't see it as an admission of failure. I, 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 I see it as a opportunity within which they are able to implement sets of reforms that they hopefully already wanted to implement that otherwise might not have like the particular package just might not have been presented in the right manner or, or available to them. Yeah. So, so why don't places do this already uh, more often? I think the, 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 the big change is just over the last 10 years, there's been a substantial change in countries' willingness to embrace new ideas, um, ideas like this. And so you historically, you've seen sort of the change in special economic zones, right? Like first, it was basically like export processing where they just focus on exports. And then you see them get like larger, a little bit more manufacturing intense. And then two, the other aspect is just that. So, so, so one thing is, it, at least in Africa, for example, a lot of African countries did not have a like strong middle class until recently. Uh, and so nobody's figured out how to basically build mass produce commercial housing for low income people in low income countries, right? Like typically that's slums and nobody's figured out how to commercialize that. So basically to undertake this type of profitable, large scale, like real estate building, that is a essential component of charter cities. You need a middle class in that country that is able to purchase that real estate because nobody has the business model to do it for low income. And if you're just doing it for elite, then that's not particularly helpful because they already have a good rule set because it's not based on the country. It's based on their personal relationships. And and so more, more generally, just to, to back up, I like to think of charter cities as having three essential components, um, politics, governance, then new city. So right, politics is a country needs to pass legislation then continue to enforce legislation that allows for this different rule set in the charter city two is governance all right you have this like right blank slate for rule set you need to create a functioning rule set that works that is successful over the long term all right both of these are very hard to do and third is real estate you actually have to build a new city and that is also like quite hard to do and so this combination of these three things right like you've seen different groups sort of like pawing at different aspects of the idea but just nobody's really fully put it together. And I think that's that's largely just because right like ideas change over time and I'm not sure exactly why countries have gotten more amenable to these types of deep reforms but they have and that opens opportunity as well as these like new city projects that are beginning to think about governance to really put them all together. It seems like in order to get a sufficiently greenfield site that doesn't have existing residents who are going to tell you to go jump off a pier, you have to kind of go somewhere like quite remote potentially where people haven't settled there for a reason and it's like not going to be a terribly appealing place to live. And because there's such like strong feedback loops like causing people to continue to locate where other people are already living, like mightn't it be like quite hard to get a, to get a new place off the ground like that? So what we're seeing is these aren't really like new cities. These are more satellite cities. So when you have cities that are growing at like right four or five percent per year, the land that's was previously uneconomical suddenly becomes economical. The project working within Zambia was originally a farm. The government built a new road that cut the travel time from two hours to thirty minutes, and now okay, farm is no longer like the highest 
value out for this asset. So how can we change this? And so when you have cities that have basically very rapid growth plans, you can buy real estate that's sufficiently far out to get a large enough amount and then piggyback off of the existing infrastructure. And you you can't do it if you have a population of like 10,000. That's probably too small to get most of the benefits from improved governance. But a population of 100,000, you can capture a lot of them. At some point in the second generation or third generation of charter cities, I do expect to see like true greenfield cities where you actually are building in a new site that has no existing infrastructure. And you see this a little bit, for example, well, not a little bit, a lot with um, Neom, which is the new Saudi city that they're building for $500 billion, like an absurd amount of money. But most of these projects tend to be state-backed because they don't seem to face the same financial constraints as do private projects. Um, at some point, once the skill set is built out that you have a track record of, we built a city for 100,000 people and it's very successful. Now we're going to raise a few, like tens of billions of dollars to build a new city with a new airport and with a new port and all of that stuff. I think you probably will see that happen over the coming years, but you, you basically need to build out the track record first. Hold on. So you're saying that initially you think that that'd be kind of just on the outskirts of existing cities? Yeah, satellite cities. One of the key aspects of the uh, charter cities legislation that we're proposing is allows for the incorporation of new land into a charter city without further legislative action. So if you have a charter city that is successful and uh, nearby landowners are like, oh, hey, we'll like, do that. Yeah, they can join. If there is a population on that land, then you want to set like a, a vote within that population, probably a supermajority, like 60%, because any like s- strong institutional change, you want supermajorities such that then the successful charter cities will be able to naturally grow without getting the legislature involved so long as you have all of the parties agreeing to that growth. Let's say that you're, you're starting one of these places in a country that has you know, a big problem with crime or corruption or something like that. Most of the people moving there presumably are going to be from this host country. Why wouldn't it just kind of inherit very similar cultural problems to what, what's holding back the, the country as a whole? Is it really going to be possible to shift the culture all that much? It depends on who the target audience is and how you do that. So for example, if you travel to Dubai, I mean, Dubai, the percentage of Emiratis who live in Dubai is I think like 7% of Dubaiians, Dubaiians <laughs> are Emiratis. And so, but there still is a very unique Dubai culture that is largely inherited from the Emiratis, from their decisions. Um, so I think people actually uh, underestimate the impact of founders on culture, right? It's not going to be as strong as a company where the founders get to choose who their employees are, but different cities are going to like have different strengths and attract different types of people. And I think that does have a reasonably strong effect on culture Two, If you look at for certain aspects, so for corruption, for example, right? Like when corrupt politicians go to New York to the UN, they start paying parking tickets. Why? Because there's actually like an economic study on this before they were not like UN diplomats were not legally required to pay, pay parking tickets. The Swedes would always pay. The Nigerians would very infrequently pay. And then they basically change the law and start enforcing it to everybody. And suddenly the Nigerians start paying and stop like parking. And so even if there are some of these cultural problems that persist, if you have the governance structure with the right incentive set, then even if they would like to be corrupt, if you make corruption costly, then they will stop being corrupt. And you are going to have a set of challenges. For example, the special economic zones in Egypt have found it difficult to be profitable because uh, women are basically have to go home at certain times of the day. They're like, like it's, it's a Muslim population. And so there are these relatively strong cultural constraints that they're not going to get around. And these are going to be inevitable in certain charter cities, um, getting around strong cultural constraints to work, to interaction, to whatever. 
And our sort of hope is one that the right, like the formal institutions are going to be sufficient to even if the informal institutions like the culture is still not conducive to economic development, the formal institutions can still lead to improvement. And then two, hopefully this change in culture over time. And so I mean, to, to be clear, right, like, in some places in Zambia, it's not, for example, realistic to have a Dubai in 30 years, but Zambia might be able to have a Johannesburg in 30 years. Uh, and so trying to focus on like, what are the realistic objectives for these countries? This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't like, right, let's turn Kenya into Denmark. This is all right. Like let's turn Kenya into, into, into South Africa. Into, somewhat richer Kenya. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Like let's, let's figure out what is the right goal within the right time horizon that is reasonably achievable. And let's like try to figure out what can lead to that. Charter cities are not going to be perfect, but the question is, are charter cities going to improve things? Are they better than the alternative? And I think the answer is in the vast majority of cases, yes. So are they going to have kind of immigration restrictions so you can like choose the people who you want to come, like people who are more educated or more productive? I would not support a charter city that had that. I, I think you want the charter city to have open immigration for the host country. I mean, I'm not sure I'd necessarily oppose it too, but I'd very strongly counsel against doing that. Um, I mean, my reason for getting interested in charter cities is largely to do with right, global poverty alleviation. And if you're restricting the people who are the neediest, then you're not really helping with global poverty alleviation, even if you're like, maybe you're helping on some margins, but like, it's not the most important margins. Would the city potentially uh, pay money back to the, to the host country as a way of like yeah, um, almost keeping certainly. it on board? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it would kind of have to be pay pay rent back to the, yeah. to the country. You would basically, sort of agreement that they form. what I, I suspect what any, right, like any charter city, you'll basically, what you'll do is you'll set a law that will basically, or an agreement that says like, this is the amount we pay every year. This is how it like increases. Like we'll have this natural increase rate. You basically say like, we'll pay like 20% of the taxes that we're getting to the host country. And we're going to start at this, like at the current level. And we're also going to have this like minimum bound where it's current level plus like, I don't know, 5% per year. So you, you have this minimum bound and then it's most likely going to go much higher, but you're going to have some revenue sharing agreement with host country. That's, that's, that's certain. On the tractability, it seems like you've got a lot of things that have to come together all at once. You got to like to have a host country that's willing to do this. Then you got to like build a business and get like funding for it to potentially build up all of this infrastructure. And then just like building infrastructure in these countries is like really hard. Or building infrastructure anywhere is, is super hard. So that's it's why like we kind of a, we let other people do it for us. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what what do you think of the odds that this actually that one of these things starts in the next five, ten, or fifteen years? Like oh. what, what 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 would you bet at? uh next five years like 90 percent. 90 percent. wow okay why why so confident so it depends on what you mean by start what i would define as start is basically have a country that has approved a new legal administration for a like defined geographic area uh the new legal system let's say actually like has a judge who decides at least one court case plus you basically have like dirt moving which i think is a reasonable definition for start and basically what we have is so, so regarding the, the building out of the physical infrastructure, there are a number of projects that are building new cities, right? Like there are lots, there are a few dozen new city projects around the world. And we want to partner with them to basically help them and the host country create a governance structure that will lead to the, like right, their incentive is increasing their land values. So we say, hey, look, here's a governance structure that increases your land values. And then we work with the host country as like, all right, like this is, this is basically how you do it. And why am I so confident? It's because right, like we're working with one in Zambia that is already moving dirt and we're working with the government and the government has so far been exci excited. We have a team on the ground that is working to create a charter city in Honduras. Um, Honduras already has a legislation. And so we're working with 
a guy who has experience uh, doing supply chain manufacturing, so basically building industrial parks. And that's going to be the first phase. So, is that because I guess some of the work had already been done in these cases? Yeah. So, at least in Honduras. In, in, in Honduras, is, is that primarily your work? No, like there's a guy building a new city and we're just like jumping along for the ride. <laughs> okay, right, right. <laughs> That's our model. Yeah. Um, like right, we're, we're basically providing, like he said on my podcast, uh, like I would like to improve governance, but like I don't, I have the capacity. And I was like, let me introduce you to somebody who like can actually write the legislation. And so we're basically providing like 30,000 foot air support. And this is our model, right? Like find the projects that are on the ground that are interested in these things and accelerate them. So you're looking for cases where people are already trying to start cities and build them. And then you're coming along and saying, why don't you also try this like legal innovation as well, where you have kind of a new government that like... Yeah, it could be that like this, right? Why don't you try this legal innovation that leads to a new government structure? It could be a think tank that is already pushing like special economic zone reform. And we're like, why don't you think about it like this so you can pass the legislation? It could be Honduras where, right, they already have the legislation. So it's then trying to think of what does this actually look like when we like put out a state like phased project and how can we make that successful? And so far, right, like one of the things that we hope to announce soon, funding dependent is a uh, charter cities business plan contest where 100K first prize, 50K, 50K second prize where the the goal will basically be to identify teams on the ground that have the capacity to build charter cities like right we want to get one two three projects and we can say all right here like go talk to the investors like this is how you like do the different stages right like get a memorandum of of understanding from the government and then go raise i don't know a few hundred thousand dollars and then right like build out the full feasibility study and then go raise like 30 million dollars whatever it is but that like planning process is It's not the same everywhere, but it's like similar enough. And I've seen it enough that I can go through the phases and we can put them in contact with the different groups at the different stages that allows them to basically build out. And even if you assume any one of these projects has a 10% chance, which I think is like an extremely, extremely pessimistic assumption, just right, like based on the rate of projects that we're we're, 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 we're seeing, we're still probably like at 90% chance of seeing a charter city within five years. Earlier, you mentioned this kind of difference in level versus growth effects yeah. i guess you're saying it's one thing to get like a one-off boost of 10 percent to people's income but it's another it's another thing to like increase the growth rate from one to two percent uh, each year or in the long term the, the latter the latter is much better potentially and it sounded like you were saying that you think that governance affects the growth rate whereas other things like improving health maybe only affects the level but i guess it seems like people who are healthier could also potentially like work harder like improve their productivity more quickly like how strong is the evidence that like it's governance specifically that that really matters to, to the long-term trajectory rather than uh, you know like a, a wider bundle of things that that people could affect by other means so far as i know i don't know any economists who make serious strong arguments that right like things like disease burden have the these long-term effects i mean you can extrapolate like jeff Sachs does to a certain extent but i mean right the, the, you, you you can't do rcts with this so the level is automatically going to be weaker than like what is the impact of um, malarial nets on malaria and then you can like uh, uh get quality short-term effect yeah get, get qualities out of that but this is non-controversial wisdom in like amongst these development economists that like governance matters for long-term growth there is an argument to be made that i mean disease burden like right can but it's a, a few degrees removed and i don't see that argument being made nearly as frequently i mean for specific evidence there isn't that much per se but if you look at just the like the history right like u.s had malaria but the u.s i think most people would agree the u.s got rid of malaria because we were basically getting rich and had the capacity to do so not because of not not like we got rid of malaria and then we got rich um and i think you see this around the world with basically disease burdens and and, and, and how they're reduced it's 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 largely a consequence of development than than a cause 
So one reason that people might offer for doing this is they think, well, we're going to do this innovative work where we uh, come up with charter cities and we, we, you know, we create one or two or three that demonstrate to the world how, how great they are, and then other places will copy. And so there's like we get this like large leverage by kind of doing doing research or innovation that that will spread elsewhere. But I wonder, like, how how big an effect might that be, given that we already have kind of lots of special economic zones around the world that have kind of demonstrated that this is a, a way to make a place richer. We also have kind of private cities, or we have like you know, corporations that like own large amounts of land and then internalize all of the all of the effects of that. And I guess we also have like new uh, or like innovative like legal infrastructures, like even like charter cities on a like smaller scale in the in the US where people try to like improve how things are governed. Do, do you think that if you manage to get a few of these off the ground, a lot of people would copy or is it just the case that there's like, there's actually barriers to, to, to implementing this and, and it's going to be a slog to get them up? No, I think that there will be a pretty strong uh, cascading effect. I think a lot of it depends on how you frame them. For example, right, like Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Dubai are all semi-charter cities, but they all have these relatively unique historical contexts that make it, I think, difficult for other countries to really see what happened. So, I mean, for example, I mean, Shenzhen had this cascading effect within China. In 2005, India passed special economics and legislation that was supposedly modeled on the Chinese, but it sort of missed all of these things, right? Like the geographic area wasn't big enough. There wasn't enough improvement in business quality like the locations were bad etc etc and so now their internal narrative is we tried this and it didn't work so like blah without it right when when the right lesson is we did not try this correctly and so if we try this correctly it might work you see the dubai international financial center has spawned like the qatar financial authority and the abu dhabi global market which all have adopted common law so you you see these regional cascading effects with charter city-esque developments so I think the key, right, like, and this is also context dependent and something that we're trying to help. The key is one, have an awareness of charter cities, right? Like this is what a charter city is. These are the key defining features such that when one is created, it's not just a, like, this is charter city-esque or whatever, but like, no, this is a charter city and this is how you do it, right? Basically create a replicable model. You're always going to have regional effects, right? Like if you get a charter city in Honduras, you're the most likely follow-ups are going to be in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, um, if you get one in Africa, it's not like Bangladesh is going to go look at Africa and be like, oh man, they're doing it. So like, we'll try it here. Like it's a little bit too socially distant, but you'll see that in Africa. And one of the things we're trying to do, for example, we have a conference in Johannesburg on October 2nd and 3rd is trying to like, right, create this network, create this common knowledge of charter cities to get the media paying attention to understand charter cities such that when we begin to see successes, there is a common knowledge of charter cities and that is able to be spread via existing networks to allow for basically the cascading effect to take place a little bit more easily than it would happen without that network. What makes you the right person to be doing this? You might think that if you want to get charter cities up in Honduras or Zambia, you need a Zambian or someone from someone from Honduras to, to, to be pushing it. Uh, it's like we're, someone from America, because you don't want to start one in America. So We're working with a Zambian and a Honduran because we think that they're the right person to be able to do it. Yeah, but <laughs> why are you the right person to like be leading this like coordination effort across countries? I don't think anybody else sees it uh so basically there's a number of different stakeholders and my advantage is that i can speak multiple languages i can speak silicon valley i can speak economist i can't really speak real estate developer but like i'm, <laughs> I'm kind of conversational and are you, are you from dc originally yeah you like yeah okay so your parents were in the government uh, in, in, uh, in, i come in, from in a distinguished line of bureaucrats okay. <laughs> and I think because of that, for example, if you look at the sort of libertarian 
history, most much of their challenge has been the inability to effectively communicate with government because their approach was a little bit too antagonistic. If you look at the Paul Romer attempts, I don't think they were able to effectively communicate with the business community. If you build a new city, you need people who can build new cities and who can raise the money to build new cities, and you need to be able to interact with them. All right, like if you are a new city, then you need to be able to speak policy to them and explain to them what is the importance of governance and why does this benefit you. And so what I saw was a number of different conversations that were siloed, that were unaware. I, was, I mean, I was speaking to one of the, like, the leading special economics zone economists, and I mentioned seasteading, and he had no idea what that was. And I tried to alert people to this. I would tell people in person. I read a few articles. And at first, I thought like, okay, well, once I tell people, then they'll get it. And <laughs> then, <laughs> then, then the problem will be solved. Yeah. And that did not happen. And the result was I was like, okay, well, like, I'll just show people. Um, right? like, and so I started this organization to bring those groups together, to have them talk to each other instead of just writing articles about it to, to actually do it. And I mean, so far, I think our traction has been, has been quite good. And I mean, there's right, like just from a like purely organizational perspective, uh, we don't have a very big reputation yet. There's like a chance within the next like year or two, there basically is some like large established organization that is able to like, right, the, you see some know, Center for Global Development or Brookings decides we're going to create like a charter cities, whatever. And then they, they have all the resources, they have all the connections. Like, right, there's the risk to the organ- the center that they could suck all the air out of the room. I actually don't even think that's that big of a risk because I don't think they would be able to do it because they would have a very specific perspective on how to do that, but they wouldn't see the other stakeholders. And, right, for example, if you don't see the new cities, like the new city developers, then, like, right, what is, is an academic who currently works at Brookings going to build a new city? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so it does have all of these different stakeholders who had all of these different conversations. And because of my, like, like George Mason, all right, like I speak economist, I, I have that perspective, but it's also a weird school because I like, I mean, part of the reason, like I went to Burning Man a bunch, I was in sort of like Silicon Valley crowds. I, I had some of those contacts. And so it sort of this like semi outsider, semi insider perspective that was able to allow me to, I think, understand this, this unique point that nobody else has figured out until now and use that as leverage to build organization. Who do you think are your like best and most kind of provocative critics? The people, the person here, like, well, I don't agree with them, but like, I'm, I'm learning by like talking to this person. Uh, Sarah Moser. Uh, she's a professor of, I believe, geography at McGill. Yeah. And she What's comes take? at this from, she, she writes a lot on new cities, not necessarily charter cities. We had a Cato inbound exchange and um, her worry is basically frequently that these are going to be enclaves for the wealthy, um, which right, like part of me, the sort of like libertarianish part. I, I, I tend to like right, view inequality as much less of a problem than most people from a left perspective. I guess it's true that if it just became an enclave for the rich, you wouldn't feel like you'd super succeeded. Yeah, I, that, that's definitely true. Right? Like, I do believe that is a legitimate criticism. A lot of the new city projects that are currently being built are targeting middle and upper middle income people. And, and, and high income. And they just kind of like income. segregate themselves off and like do, do nicely yeah. about it. And I'm, I'm not against those per se. It's just that like those aren't interesting to me. Like, like yeah. I don't like, right, you can build a gated community. Good for you. Like, I think you should be able to do that. But that's not ending poverty. But yeah, that it doesn't have an impact. And like, I don't really care. So what would like determine whether these things do become just like uh, places that the wealthy move to uh, versus like places that everyone can move to? It well, does, does seem like there, there could be like, you know, if, if you're like the, the corporation that's starting this area, then there could be pretty strong incentive to just like bring in the most educated people to to make it like as rich as possible as quickly as possible i don't think so i think the strongest incentive is actually to bring in the low-income people Hmm, what's that so right like toyota sells more cars than mercedes does toyota makes more money than mercedes does why because 
Toyota hits a larger market segment. Like the, the, the largest addressable market is it's probably not lowest income, but it's, it's low income. Uh, and so, right. Like if you look at Kenya, like, right. How many like charter cities can you build for high income Kenyans? One, maybe for middle income Kenyans, like two, three, maybe for low income Kenyans, like, I don't know, five, 10. <laughs> so if, if you want to like increase the land value a lot, then you just want everyone to be able to move there. Like get as many people interested in moving to the city as possible. So like why limit it? I guess like an open borders policy probably maximizes the land value or, or at least it arguably could. Yeah. And this goes to the discussion we were having previously, right? Like you can think of charter cities as what I call a Shenzhen clone or a Dubai clone where Shenzhen is right. Like you're targeting low income people. It's, it's, this is sort of the global poverty. And those are usually going to be like highly labor intensive, low human capital versus Dubai, where you target high human capital. And the number of Dubai clones you can build is, is limited, right? Like there aren't that many opportunities to build that, right? Like maybe you do one in North Africa, one in Central America, maybe one in South America, but there, there's so many more opportunities to basically target low human capital people to, to build that out. And that's, that's just, that's that's much more exciting to me and, and, and much more interesting. For this next section on what concretely uh, CIG actually does and how it got off the ground, uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Tamara Winter, who is, as of last November, uh, four months ago, the operations lead at CIGR. She previously studied economics and public policy uh, at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas uh, before joining the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and then heading on to CIGR just a few months ago. So uh, welcome to the show, Tamara. Thanks for having me. How did you end up working at CIGR? This is this is one of your first jobs at a university, right? That's right. So I met Mark, was it two years ago? Uh, two and a half. Two and a half years ago. So I met him while I was interning in DC and I actually crashed his PhD party. So we had met on Twitter and he had written, this was during the height of the Pokemon Go craze. So he had written this article about how we were no longer bowling alone, but we were Pokemon going together. <laughs> and I literally <laughs> use that pun. So I, I went to the party and of course, again, he didn't invite me and I walked up to him and I said, you wrote this piece and like, I wanted to write that piece. And he just looked at me and he said, so why didn't you? Um, and that's, <laughs> it was, it was kind of rude. And then I decided we punk. needed to be friends. Yeah. <laughs> So I was working in D.C. at the Mercatus Center, as you mentioned, and last April we met again at ISFLC, and he told me about the center, and I kind of joked that he should hire me, and then a week later he called me and said, actually, I, I do want to hire you, and I was like not prepared to join the center at all. I was like, I can promise you three months' salary. <laughs> <laughs> Minimum wage. <laughs> right. So I'm incredibly risk-averse, so the idea of you know leaving a job to go work somewhere for three months of a salary was not going to cut it for me. So I told him he should come back to me when he had a year pay. And then he did. And then I, I um, left my job pretty soon thereafter. What are your main projects? You know, I've been onboarding for the past four months or so. I think when you only have two people, everybody does everything and everybody wears a lot of different hats. So Mark has really kind of put me through the ringer and learning how to do development, learning how to talk about charter cities, learning what charter cities are and what the big projects are around the world. So in short, everything. <laughs> Those are all my projects. How did you get convinced to, to, to join the project? So I, like I said, I met Mark two and a half years ago. And I think you know when you meet people that they people whose vision you know is going to be implemented. And so Mark is one of those people where when he says something, I know it's going to happen. So when he called me and said, hey, I'd like to help you, or I'd like you to help me, you know, actually make this Charter Cities vision a reality, I had no idea how that was going to happen. And I honestly was like, oh, this sounds a little fake. Um, but... 
we're going to build a city. It's going to be in Zambia. <laughs> every time, right. Every time I said this and to you a like, friend or a family member. I believe this will happen. <laughs> right. So I didn't, I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I have this faith in Mark as a person. I think there's a lot of people who have lots of ideas all the time, whose kind of main contribution to the world is ideas, but getting from idea to execution is something that I think very few people can do really well. And Mark is one of those people I know who has an idea of how to get from idea to execution. And so even though I had no idea how any of this was going to happen, right, when I joined the Zamia project hadn't even really started, I believed in and Mark and his ability to lead and his ability to execute on a vision. And if he didn't know how to do something, to find the people who did. And I think that hunch has been borne out. That's by far the nicest thing you ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. Uh, how much time did you spend kind of looking into whether Charter Cities is uh, is like as, as good an idea as it, as it seems on the on the tin? Back in April, when we first started having these conversations, Mark said, okay, I'm going to give you like a, a short reading list. And he gave me, <laughs> he gave me his dissertation. He gave me like 10 different books and none of them were particularly small and said, okay, let's just keep having conversations about this throughout the summer. So I'm doing my full-time job and I'm trying to learn just what a Charter City is. So even though I've been on on board for about four months now, it's really been, we're coming up on a year long of work and we still have a lot more to do, I think on that front. Yeah, Mark, I, what was the hiring process like from your point of view? Were you like following up on a whole bunch of different leads of people who you thought might be able to, you know, be, be, be your first hire? Because it's, it's, it's a huge commitment. It's a really big decision. Yeah. So basically the, the decision-making process was I wanted somebody in sort of a, a junior co-founding role and there, yeah, there were a handful of people. So I, I mean, had some not a lot, but like one or two conversations with, for example, Brandon Fuller, who worked with Paul Romer on Charter Cities. But the Charter City space is like very small. The, the, the other aspect is that, or like like any small space, there are people with like very strong opinions in that space. And so one of the things I did not want to do was hire somebody in that space who disagreed with me on strategy and disagreed with me on implementation because I thought that would not lead to good outcomes. So basically the the metric was smart, somebody I got along with, somebody who could help create the the, the culture of the company and and basically could help it uh grow with me because i mean i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> um right like this is this is the first time i've managed somebody this is or like this is a whole host of new experiences for me and finding somebody who and also somebody who i got along with i mean right like if we're going to work together then it's not it, it, i don't want a you like, be friends as well yeah just because that's that, that that's a lot of time you're spending together so it has to be like reasonably enjoyable um and i think yeah i mean tammy fit that bill and she since exceeded expectations that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> yeah, so were you kind of uh, very cautious about hiring? I guess, uh, 80, so at 80,000 hours, yeah, in the very early days when we were just a few people, we also had this experience of kind of everyone's doing everything. There's this general tendency that people are uh, like enthusiastic to hire and grow early on and then they learn that actually like it pays potentially to go quite slowly and be very cautious about hiring because like a single bad hire can, can, can be very bad for a project. Did you have any kind of philosophy on, on hiring as an early stage project? Hire people and have money in the bank to pay them. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's forcing you to go slower, I guess. Um, I mean, yeah, like I said, I mean, it, so I expected to be able to pay myself within three months and it took a year. So the, the fundraising process was slower than I expected. And because I expected to be faster, I started a lot of these conversations when I, right, like I was like, all right, I have money in like two months. And no, no, that, that was a lie. <laughs> and that I think allowed me to go slow. And now as we're looking for like subsequent hires, it's, I think it's a little bit trickier in early stages because the roles are less defined. And so in a later stage, right, like once you've already got 10 people, the 11th role is a little bit more well-defined versus the second role where it's like everything. And so we're right now, is it still early? I mean, for example, 
we put out a job listing for a research fellow and interviewed several people and then realized that that was actually not the right job listing. That was not what we wanted to hire. There were several assumptions. For example, right, I did my PhD at George Mason, and I sort of assumed that other doctors, doctorates, would understand the DC think tank area without realizing that my understanding of the DC think tank scene was not because I did a PhD, but because I like lived there and had friends who did it. And then I think one of the other challenges for, for example, a software company, there is a software culture, there is a startup culture. So right, like every company has their own culture, but there is this sort of like meta level culture that you can draw from. And because we're trying to bring all these siloed conversations together, there isn't a pre-existing meta level culture. Hopefully in like two or three years, we'll help to be able to create one. But because of that, one of the things to consider in the new hires, right, like the next person we hire is going to be somebody who has a lot of experience in international development. And one of the things I'm a little bit worried about just is right. Like how much experience I'm trying to treat this like a startup. So how much experience do they have in like early stage organizations where it is a little bit more chaotic where, right. There are all of these other things going on. And I think that's, that's just going to be one of the challenges is that, right. Like we're going to bring a bunch of people with different experiences together, um, much more so than in, I think your average like nonprofit. Um, for example, if you like run a libertarian nonprofit, there is a meta libertarian culture that is relatively easy to draw from. And, and, and we just don't have that yet. So, so that's, definitely going to be a challenge moving forward. Yeah. So Tamara, you said you're uh, quite risk averse in general. What are, what are you risk averse about? And uh, I guess, yeah, do you think you're going to continue to work in kind of early stage projects or kind of more, more, more speculative projects in the future? So I am Nigerian and that's probably where a lot of this risk aversion comes from. I think it's baked into the culture. So I always joke that if you're Nigerian, you can be like three different things. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, and I'm none of those things. Um, so you're, of course, I'm sure you're an enormous disappointment to your parents. <laughs> so I guess my biggest success was convincing her not to go to grad school. So, right. So, um, baked into this risk aversion calculation is how am I going to explain this next decision to my father? So I have really wonderful parents, but I'm, I think like a lot of first gens always kind of looking to make them proud, right? They moved continents for my siblings and I, so that I think they want like economic security, Exactly. And and in some turn in some ways, like the choice to immigrate or not is is sort of one of those like long time horizon decisions. So you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing for your children in, in the long term. And so I guess I always want to honor that by sort of picking jobs in life that are going to have um, economic security. So this is this is definitely one of those jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so the center was absolutely a risk, right? Um, and it took conversations with several different mentors before I was really comfortable saying yes. So it was like not a sure fit at all that after Mark had asked me to join the center that I would join. And in the middle of the summer, we were having this conversation and I actually told him that I wasn't going to be able to do it because I needed to go to grad school, as he just mentioned. And it just took more and more conversations with one of um, with one of Mark's mentors, with a couple of my mentors, and really with my little sister who said, Tammy, you have nothing to lose. You should do it. And it was exciting and I feel really grateful because it's it just introduced this concept of asymmetric risk to me, right? So these things that have very high upsides if they work out, but if they don't, there's very little downside. So if the center doesn't work out and now I can't see how that would happen, there are plenty of things that I could go do and I've lost nothing by by coming here. Yeah, so you get a bunch of experience and then you can go back to grad school or just just do whatever you wanted to do otherwise. It's funny, I, I can't I see myself going to grad school. Build charter cities. <laughs> Okay, so if this fails, you're just going to start another charter city. 
Yeah, yeah, I could see myself moving out to SF. I love cities in general, and I'm always curious about cities and design and how they affect, you know, human incentives and behavior. So I could totally see myself like moving to SF and sort of working in in that space. But I don't know what what would be next. But I I feel confident with this founding or this grounding rather that it would be good. Yeah. So uh, do you guys work together like very closely day to day? Like, what does a typical day day look like for for both of you? Yeah, we work right across the table from each other. Yeah. Uh, do you work so, from home or do you have a proper no, office yet? We work at a, out of a cove. It's like a WeWork in DC, but it's cheaper and they have great snacks. So we typically will chart out what it is that we have to do for the week. So we kind of know what our big tasks are. And then we'll just kind of sit there and, and work. And we spend, I, will, I won't lie, we spend a lot of the day laughing or just like reading dumb tweets to each other. Um, but it's actually a really fun workplace. It has lots of like natural light and it's gorgeous. And I'm a big believer in like your space determining kind of your outlook for the day. So I really, I really enjoy it. Maybe he has a different... Uh, no, I think that's that's a description. I mean, so mostly tweets. We yeah, <laughs> uh, we travel. I mean, I travel a little bit more than her, but probably uh, right two or three weeks out of the month um, somewhere else. And then in addition, it's it tends to be relatively varied. I mean, a decent number of of meetings, just like talking with people. A lot, a lot of it is basically planting the seed, right? And so, for example, we were in New York last week, and we went with a journalist, and we were like, "Come write a story on us." And he's like. There aren't enough characters. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'll put on a funny hat. Um, <laughs> all right. So that's something. But like, right, we need more progress. So maybe in six months or maybe in a year, we reach out again to him again. It's like, all right, we've done these things. Now come write a story on us. And a lot of these relationships, right, there's there's no nothing necessarily immediately actionable, but it's basically laying the groundwork such that when the things do become actionable, the conversations become much easier because we already have that pre-existing relationship. Uh, so that's a, a decent uh, portion of our time. And then also, for example, like right, writing op-eds, commissioning white papers, right? I mean, we've been writing a few invitation letters. We're having an event this, this Saturday that Founders Fund is hosting. And so we had to write some visa letters for people who are flying from Honduras and Zambia. So I guess uh, this is this has somewhat come up, but if, if you had to describe it in kind of one minute how the center is going to make Charter Cities happen, uh, what, what would that description be? We are going to bring together the relevant stakeholders with expertise and create common knowledge and relationships that allow them to build Charter Cities. Who are the stakeholders and uh, what are you going to tell them? To a certain extent, our superpower is that we can speak these different languages. And so be able to position charter cities. Okay, if you're in international development, right, you care about policy change to lead to economic growth. We can explain that if you're a new city developer, you care about right, like increasing the land value, your, your, your real estate value. So we can work with that. If you are a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, then right, like we can explain why the previous strategies weren't necessarily successful and why this strategy will be successful. They're, they're all moving in, in the same direction anyway, but being able to sort of understand from a higher level what that direction is and being able to reach out and bring them together to start building out their relationships. So for example, uh, Muya, who's building the new city in Zambia, Nakwashi, right? Like when I told him like Silicon Valley is interested in this, he was like, no, really, what? And I was like, let me tell you. Um, and, and so there is a lot of, right, like sometimes we get a little bit of skepticism at first, like why would I, I that be interesting to me? But over time, continuing to be there, continuing to make similar arguments, I think you, you do you do win them over. They, they do begin to, to sort of see the, the logic of the, the, the idea set that you're presenting. I've seen and to various extents participated in other approaches. I think the other approaches generally can be sort of, uh, there's two, it's one, like build it yourself, be the founding entrepreneur. And then two, it's invest in them. And so I, right, like being the founding entrepreneur, I'm a white American, 
right? Like it's, I don't think it's a right. Like, and I also don't have a lot of business experience. So to go into a country and say, one, I want going to build this charter city and to like have all the political connections, all of there, there's a lot of baggage going on there. Um, that might work for certain people who have certain experience sets, but I don't think it would work for me. Two, to invest in them, right? I worked for an asset management firm that was investing in early stage charter cities, but there was a big challenge with deal flow. And since they've pivoted to actually trying to build one. And so what we're trying to do is to a certain extent is increase the deal flow of potential charter cities. And then three, basically, I saw that this there was this coordination challenge and I was able to see that and to, to, to help solve it. And then lastly, basically, being a nonprofit allows you to start conversations that you otherwise wouldn't be able to start. And so, for example, in approaching governments, those conversations are much easier if you're a nonprofit than if you're a for-profit company. Um, there's certain conversations that are more difficult to start. So one of the stakeholders is investors and sovereign wealth funds, for example, which I think are a potential investor class that would be interested in charter cities is difficult to approach as a nonprofit because the value proposition is very different from what they're used to. But in general, most of the conversations, it's just much easier to start as a nonprofit to lay the groundwork. Is the plan that kind of both of you become uh, like uh, constantly doing media and like spreading the word about this a lot? Or is it going to be more just like, you know, back office meetings, like talking to the right people and, and getting them excited? I think with something like Charter Cities, I'll, because it is such a new phenomenon, right? It's just a totally new subject. You have to kind of spend time building these relationships. So one great way to get sort of like an external boost is to have media time. So I'm not sure it's going to be something that's going to be the core of our strategy. But for now, we're spending a lot of time, like Mark said earlier, just building relationships with people in the media, with people in Silicon Valley, with people in New York finance. And so it's just a, a necessary step, but not sufficient for what we're trying to do in the future. Yeah. And so to, to elaborate a little bit, the media strategy is basically trying to create a filter, right? Like trying to identify all of these people and reach out to them. Like we can't do that. What we want to do is build a lighthouse that like has a big chart neon charter cities sign on top. That way, everybody who is interested in charter cities begins to follow this neon sign and comes up and starts talking to us. So the space is like sufficiently small that you kind of want to be like, you want to build a charter city, come talk to us. And then you can start like making connections between all these people who've gotten in touch. You're like the, the clearinghouse for this. Basically. Just to give you a slightly more specific example, we published this white paper on like how to build a charter city in Honduras two weeks ago. And so about a week ago, I had a call with a um, Venezuelan migrant living in Australia who I think had seen this. And we spoke, I was at first a little bit skeptical, but Basically, uh, he had just finished like a degree in law, had some free time. And I was like, look, right, write a white paper on like how, like what a charter city in Venezuela would look like, right? These people keep coming out of the cracks. I used to know all of them personally and now meet a new person every like two or three weeks. And what we're trying to do is sort of write like one, create a filtering mechanism to create a data database within which we can uh, find the people who are immediately helpful, who have potential to help in the future, who like, right, what stage are they at? And, and just like build out this, this giant network. Yeah. How hard is it to get people to pay attention to you? I'm not sure it's difficult to get people to pay attention to us. I think depending on the different stakeholder we're talking about, there is a level of disbelief that exists with charter cities that makes it uh, makes every interaction much more important. So, for example, a lot of people that I've spoken to in DC about charter cities are have this very high bar of sort of proof of concept that they would like to see before this becomes like a real thing to them. Whereas when we're having conversations out here in San Francisco, there's a sort of 
of art bias towards the weird and the untested and the kind of the new. So it's much less difficult, I think, to start those conversations about charter cities. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And then just thinking through several additional stakeholders, for example, the new city projects. Um, I mean, that's been a little bit, I guess, uh, slower international development community. So one of the things it generally works at once because people have been talking about these ideas for a while and I don't think they've had right like strategic implementation plans that make them realistic. So for example, I was speaking with um, Bruno Macheas uh, and he's the, he wrote a, um, two books, one called The Dawn of Eurasia, the other called uh, Belt and Road and is the former like minister of Europe from Portugal. Uh, and um, I mean, he basically said, like, lots of people have been telling me these ideas, and you're the first one that said, like, uh, basically it coherently. And so I think once we get in person, people sort of see that there's a level of realism and, and detail in the plans and, and, and buy-in, but sometimes it's tricky getting in person. And then, two, the other aspect is just that as two people, uh, it can be difficult to actually have right, like concrete actionable steps with several partners just because we don't have that much capacity. So what we're trying to do is basically continue to build out capacity such that when we meet these different stakeholders, instead of it just being a conversation with sort of like potential for future action in six months, there can actually be like immediate action on the ground that we can be able to execute. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you feel it might be a, a little bit crazy um, ambitious to do what you're trying to do, given that kind of Paul Roma, like he's so famous, has so much so much career capital. He like he struggled to do it or he like tried to do it and then kind of crashed against the rocks. Uh, does that worry you a little bit uh, looking at kind of the, the, the failed projects in the past? No, I find it really exciting. Actually, okay. <laughs> I mean, it is. You're right. It's it's a pretty crazy idea, right? You are our stated goal is that we're going to help lift tens of millions of people out of poverty and that is the standard that we are holding ourselves to. And to me, that's a really exciting thing. Yeah. So like a lot of projects that seem like they're a good idea don't get off the ground because in order to make anything happen, you kind of need the right person and like the right funders and, you know, a decent level of interest and a place to work like all at once. And it can be hard to like actually make something happen. How did, um, how did the center actually like get off the ground in the first place? Given that, given that there's so many project ideas that, you know, stall before, before they ever reach fruition. It was largely luck. I was fortunate enough to be able to take a uh, leap and then basically several uh, chance encounters or I mean our biggest donor reached out to me independently he had, he had heard of us and, and seen us a little bit and he was quite helpful if I can move it back one layer I also think it's just this commitment to the long-term vision and so you work backwards from there and say okay if our goal is again to help lift tens of millions of people out of poverty what is it that I need to do today in the next 10 minutes, hour, eight hours to make that happen. And I think there's an incredible amount of discipline here, I think, especially with Mark. So Mark will tell you it's luck, but I'm in the office with him every day. And he is pretty relentless in terms of getting finished all the things that he has like on his to-do list on any given day or week. And I think when it's not fun, right? Like when we are curious about where the next check is going to come from, or when we're tired from having been on a couple of different planes in rapid succession, when you're tired and you're kind of sort of in that like low place, that commitment to the long-term vision, I think is why this is going to persist even when we're, yeah, we're not like seeing it immediately. What's your process for setting your strategy and kind of, do you set goals for like each week or each month or kind of over the year? Like, and do you have some kind of cycle by, by which you do this? This is great because we actually just set our goals for the next three years. Uh, last Saturday I was at, <laughs> I was doing a bit <laughs> a of long work. time. Yeah. 
still like, exist, I guess, might be the first goal. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, just last weekend, I was doing some work at a coffee shop, and Mark said, "Hey, do you want to see our business plan for for the first the first one that he had created?" It was. I won't elaborate too much on it, but it was hilarious. I mean, just <laughs> the the absolute fantasy. No one should ever say this man doesn't have imagination. But we kind of start with the high level, right? So it's the kind of thing where you want to set whatever the high level goal is for the next year or the next three years, and then you work backwards from there. And I think that's kind of how we proceed with strategy. I think what's great about this team is that we have a lot of conversations. So Mark will suggest one thing and then I'm never sort of shy to challenge it and vice versa. But so you start with like the high level goals and then you just, like I said, you just sort of work backwards from there. And so at this point, you know, at the beginning of every month, we'll set out our monthly goals. And then at the beginning of every week, we'll set out our weekly goals. And that dictates what we do on a day-to-day basis. So even though we said earlier that it is kind of crazy, as any early stage startup would be, there is absolutely a structure there. Yeah, that's that's completely right. And when I hired Tammy, I told her, if she's not offending me, sometimes she's not doing her job right. Because I think, right, like having a culture of openness and honesty, I mean, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. And I think having a culture that can try to correct for those mistakes relatively quickly is quite important. So our, our three-year goal uh, includes, I think, what is it? We want to, on year three, incubate, is it 15 or 20 charter cities? And it was also like have half of the heads of state, like have connections to half of the heads of state around the world. Um, So these are very, very lofty goals. Very, very achievable goals. (laughs) As you're putting together like a strategy of like what concretely you're going to do, there's going to be very difficult trade-offs. It's like, well, I'm going to talk to some people, I'm not going to talk to others. We're going to do, say, meetings rather than do mass media. Like what what are the difficult decisions that you've had to make in in terms of prioritizing like what is the most important thing to, to be working on? I mean, so for example, I've like turned down money before because they basically said you should do this. And I was like, this is not good strategy. This was before I was even paying myself. There was opportunity to raise that $35,000 and you wanted me to do a very specific task that I did not think was a good use of my time. Uh, and I mean, when you're not paying yourself, that's a tricky decision. Yeah. I think now it's, it's stabilized a little bit in that we have, a, I think, a good sense of what the relevant trade-offs are. And I mean, we try to like use very high leverage. So basically, right, find the local partners and empower them to be able to do the hard work. I'm liable to get easily distracted by sort of shiny things that come up. And so what I'm kind of learning is how to do things that stack. So for example, when we do our podcast, right, how to get three or four different content streams out of it so that we're not just doing one-offs. So I think that's kind of how I think about things these days, doing things that aren't just going to be impactful in the short term, but are really going to be useful three or four months down the line or years down the line. Imagine that in like a year's time, you've done a huge pivot and are doing something quite different. Uh, what, what, What do you think that might look like? We're not going to pivot. Okay. <laughs> Still DC mindset, not not San Francisco mindset. Well, yeah. No, I mean I don't know. This but is I, I don't I don't mean you like give up on the charter cities idea, but you're like no, the way to get charter cities is is some is some quite different method, or like maybe you're going to move country or something like that. There there are I mean several options, right? Like there are other charter city strategies that basically assume that the. Overton window is much wider than it is. And so you do have groups that are pushing a much more radical version of charter cities. And you do have some like explicitly, I don't know what to call them, secessionist projects. For example, I mean, Somaliland in in Somalia, right? It's been a country for uh, almost 30 years now, but it hasn't been internationally recognized despite having free and fair elections. And you could imagine a short to medium term future where the dam breaks and there's basically a much, much wider variance in governance outcomes than we sort of currently expect, right? We're currently basically guessing the trend is like this, like it, it, it's normal and there could be an inflection point, which would allow for the much wider 
possibility and then we'll adjust our strategy based on that and and and, and try to work within that could you imagine trump getting excited about you know doing a huge real estate deal and creating trump landia or something like that i'm not sure i'm not <laughs> sure the administration currently is sort of like focused on any specific thing regarding economic development. I guess regarding Africa, I went to uh, the administration's unveiling of their Africa strategy. And I think importantly, it name-checked One Belt, One Road, right? The Chinese initiative. And then the solution, sort of the American counter to One Belt, One Road was, okay, so I really think we need to retool foreign aid, right? So I don't, I don't know that the administration is pursuing sort of anything seriously regarding international development uh, with any sort of imagination beyond like, moving around two to $4 billion in the federal budget. So unfortunately, no. Yeah. I mean, I think you could see a, a, a shift to that. It would take a while for the administration to, I think, fully get that mindset because they don't currently have it. But One Belt, One Road is Charter City-esque in certain ways. And so I think it is possible that in several years, because they're sort of basically fumbling around for a strategy now and they haven't really uncovered a, a, a response, but it's possible the next administration might. I don't think we'd want to necessarily like partner with them. I mean, I think American soft power is good in terms of, right, like these are good ideas. Liberalism is generally good. Freedom of speech is generally good. Not generally, it's like really good. And I, America, I think, has a not great history of intervention around the world. And so like I think American soft power and culture and, and right, like technical support and investment in charter cities is good. But I, I mean, it, it would have to be on a case by case basis. But I think a full American government like embrace of charter cities just sort of goes back to like the worst Paul Romer, like guarantor country, like great sort of neocolonialism that I don't think is is beneficial either long term or short term, short term for charter cities. Yeah. And I think the important thing about charter cities is that they give sort of developing countries, emerging economies, the opportunity to build something new, right? Whereas a lot of the institutions that so many countries have are not sort of by their own choosing. Charter cities allow for them to kind of select the governance system that they think would be the most prudent for their specific, you know, greenfield site where the charter city would be built. And I think that is a really important part of owning your development and owning your your emergence. It's very diplomatic of you both to find a way to turn my stupid question into a serious question and make some good points there. So uh, well, well done. You're, you're going to go far. W- what is it like uh, working in, in D.C.? I've kind of heard that it's a place where like um, seeming serious and having like good credentials and being a, like, I guess, being being traditional so that other people don't worry that being associated with you is going to create problems for them is, is like a very serious thing. Is, is that is that right? Uh, yes. When I met Tammy, right, I had just received my doctorate. And so the party was called, trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> and I was walking around in a white lab coat. And so because of that, you can know how serious of a person I am. <laughs> I think DC has flaws, but I think it's also on some margins an underrated city. And so, right, if you want to do tech, you go to San Francisco. If you want to act, you go to LA. If you want to do finance, you go to New York. If you have ideas, you go to DC. And so it does attract a like very smart, very dedicated number of people who are very interested in policy and understanding it. You get a much higher level of technical detail in D.C. Because it's in D.C. and like around the federal government, the scope of ideas tends to be relatively constrained. So you tend to assume, right, like the continuing of the ex- existing political system to a much greater extent than people in, in San Francisco or outside of D.C. might assume. So there's a little bit less scope, but there there is a lot of interest in in details in in policies that you won't get anywhere else spoken like a true phd (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, would you recommend that people who are interested in kind of big ideas in politics move to DC, or do you think the kind of creativity is going to be killed off by the by the realism of the city? Yes, now is the time for grand narratives. Uh, so, for example, we mentioned Glenn Weil earlier, right? Like his radical exchange. I mean, I right? Like they just formed a a a nonprofit. I don't think it's going to be based in DC, but you're you're seeing the right like right, with Trump, and you currently have a like civil war in the Democratic Party with the moderates versus the 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 far left. Um, and you're seeing the reemergence of these of of grand ideas. And if you have grand ideas in the policy space, then DC is the right place. I think that's right, right? Like you look on the Hill and you see specific offices that are very interested in tech policy. So for example, um, Senator Mike Lee's office uh, through the Joint Economic Committee, which he chairs, is very interested in in sort of reviving America's tech policy. I've heard that Nancy Pelosi's office is really interested in this as well. Marco Rubio's office is really interested in um, industrial policy. So I think it would be great if we could have a lot more people, a lot more young people who are excited about the ideas, who believe in a sort of positive vision of America and its potential, uh, the potential of tech, and just generally like take a positive long-term view of the future of humanity. I think it would be really great to have a lot more of those people in Washington, D.C. Although I totally understand why they might move to SF first. Is it potentially hard to get meetings in DC because people are like charter cities, like that's a pretty whack and fire out idea. Like I don't have time for this. I got to worry about, you know, healthcare or something. I mean, how much, to what extent are you even trying to meet American politicians or is it mostly you trying to meet people from other countries? So, uh, I mean, from a high level, uh, it's much easier to get meetings in San Francisco, right? Like in San Francisco, it's got a very, if you're in tech, the hierarchy is very flat um, because there's assumption that anybody could be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, I mean, I've run into extremely successful founders at public parties and right. You never run into a congressman or a senator in D.C. Uh, I've lived there my whole life. We're not approaching D.C. politicians. Uh, we are basically last year we were focused in SF because that's where our, our funding base is. Now we're beginning to build out relationships with people in D.C., but it's actually quite interesting. I went through Brookings and the Center for Global Development to look up all their Africa experts. And I've had more luck finding billionaires email addresses than I have finding like their email addresses. Right? They just like weren't listed on the page. And then they're they're semi-responsive. Everybody basically has a like reasonably well-defined research program and thing. And so there isn't there isn't that much like, oh cool idea. I have um, flexibility in my schedule life to to work on it. It's it's like this is what I do. I'm not looking outside of my lane. I'm gonna optimize within my lane. Well in San Francisco, for example, there's a lot of people who, if there is a new interesting idea that comes along, then they're willing to reallocate some time and energy towards that new idea. And in DC, that's that's a lot more difficult. Are you able to say like the last ten like important meetings that you had? Kind of who, who were they with, and like what was what was the what were the goals of the meetings? I think the biggest was uh, we went to Zambia in December, of course, to meet with two cabinet level officials. And there we were intending to get one champion of charter cities, right? So to get any sort of charter cities legislation passed, you want to go through the bureaucrats and, of course, the, the cabinet level officials. So there we expected to get one champion and we got four. And it was really exciting because there is a broad understanding with all of the people that we spoke with in Zambia that governance matters and it is going to be the thing that determines Zambia's future. And so that I think was sort of the signature meeting that we've had in the last couple of months, but Mark can also elaborate on some others. Yeah. I mean, other just sort of, uh, for example, when we were in New York, we met with a potential donor. Um, We met with a journalist who writes for the Atlantic in DC. I met with somebody who works at, at Brookings and on Africa, I have a meeting when I come back with somebody, also another a colleague of his at Brookings. 
and so it is basically trying to find people who have like our semi in the charter city space make them aware of us and slowly start to like get them to either write either for us or write like just about us or be aware of us potentially like scope out whether they're good to participate in events and really just build a network like that sounds like you might be kind of enjoying yourself a little bit more in california or in, or in the bay area is there any chance that you're just going to end up moving here because you get like so much more uh, <laughs> tomorrow's <laughs> looking very excited here i every time we come out here i tell mark we need to move out here i would love to move to san francisco i think one of the things that being out here does for me specifically is changes your idea about what's possible, right? So I tend to think that the kinds of people that you are around all day long give you an idea in your own life, in your professional life, personal life, whatever, of what's possible and what's not. And so when I come to San Francisco, I feel like the sky is the limit for what we could accomplish. And so I just feel more creative out here and more excited. And I'm definitely saying all of this to kind of keep dropping seeds in Mark's lap about why we need to, <laughs> to move out here. But we also have some very good reasons for staying in DC. I'll go over some of those reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, Mark. I think for both of us, it could make sense for us to be based in San Francisco. For everybody else we hire, it makes more sense to be in DC. There are several reasons for that. One is just aesthetic. If you are in San Francisco, you're, the signal you're sending is, we can do this better, like we don't need you. When you're in DC, it's the system works well and we need to like, figure out how to improve it. Two is, as I pre mentioned previously, just in terms of policy expertise, right? Like all the, the, the major multilateral organizations that we want to build relationships with, the World Bank, um, IMF, uh, Brookings are all in DC. If we can't get them on board, we're not going to be successful. And we're not going to get them on board if we're based in San Francisco. And it's great. There are some really amazing organizations that are working currently to bridge the gap between San Francisco and D.C. So groups like the Lincoln Network, the Economic Innovation Group are doing some great sort of policy centric work to kind of bridge the two worlds. But for the time being, it does make sense to be based in D.C. My sense is that there's like been an increasing amount of antagonism between kind of D.C. and, and, the, and, and the tech scene. I'm not sure whether that's just the media blowing out of proportion just for kind of a uh, entertainment or, or, or to get clicks but it sounds like your, your facial expressions are telling me that there that there might be actual some actually some real tension between these two cultures or a bit of a clash between how they think yeah i think there definitely is um i mean you see for example right like mark zuckerberg in front of congress um increasing calls for antitrust uh with bezos and i mean his i don't know dick pics and this sort of the low hints that this might have been a government-sponsored operation like the the fact that there's even discussion about that even if it didn't happen just suggests this speaks this, to the suspicion uh, yeah the like right i don't think there would have been that suspicion 10 years ago it, it shows the the current state of the culture and there's i mean several ways to interpret all of this one is tech is bad and needs to be reined into by dc and there's certainly some truth to that narrative two is tech is now challenging the acela corridor in terms of like a just a being a power base and i think there's also some truth to that narrative too and the acela corridor is basically just responding to that but in general, I mean, you, you're beginning to see this like three years ago, I would come to San Francisco and there'd be no like policy specific discussion. I would know more about every policy than anybody. And now I come out here and I chat with people and it's not uncommon for people to have policy perspectives that I'm just not familiar with. Um, and so I think uh, San Francisco, partially for necessity, is rapidly catching up on sort of the policy frontier. And I think over the next three or four years, you're going to see Right. Like, uh, I mean, maybe it's partially defensive, but you're going to see this, this, I think, rapid change in how San Francisco and D.C. interact as you see, I think, sort of this increasing, I mean, semi-populism, semi-antitrust, whatever you want to call it, as well as this, right, like San Francisco seriousness about 
responding to that and beginning to uh, 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 try to play a larger role in DC. And so just one example, right? Like every administration you get like right three or four bankers from New York who come down to DC to be like cabinet level officials and nobody from San Francisco, like no venture capitalists, no, no founders. Uh, and it's not clear that that's necessarily a good thing. I also think for its part, there are conversations happening around Washington about sort of increasing the level of technical knowledge um, within specifically Congress, right? So there are some conversations happening about possibly bringing back the Office of Technology Assessment. And I think if that happened, that would be a really great thing. You know, people, offices specifically with an eye towards recruiting people with some baseline level of knowledge about technology, about where it was, about where it's going. I think those would both be very good and welcoming trends. Yeah, what's what's the most binding constraint for for the org? Um, you know, achieving more uh, right right at the moment. The the first one is funding. So we have uh, decent funding right now uh, that will last us hopefully till the next end of the year, but it achieves basically half of our budget, our desired budget for this year. Uh, second is is hiring. So basically, finding the right people has been a little bit more challenging than uh, we had initially hoped. And what's what's the challenge with with hiring? Just that I think one, I mean, it's probably partially my fault and that I misconceived the, the, the role as a research fellow when we're really we're looking for somebody who's a little bit more of a, a director of external affairs. Uh, and then two, it is really identifying that key role who is outside of our network and figuring out how to basically get the job listing in front of them to get them to apply, especially because we're looking, what we're looking for is relatively specific. I mean, we sort of like the, the ideal candidate is a, a former minister of a low income country who has a decent amount of experience in international development, which is a, like we're, we're pretty selective of who we want to, who we want to bring on. And I will say, since we know that our binding constraints are funding and sort of filtering through the, the talent everything we do is sort of with an eye towards those two things. And so it's great to kind of know what your weaknesses are so that you can work on them constantly. And so I'm really cheered by the fact that we don't sort of ever, for example, when we were looking to hire the research fellow, we had several great candidates, but we weren't really going to just hire one to hire one. So I really like the fact that even though we do have these specific constraints, we are always working to improve the organization and we're not sort of making decisions out of scarcity. Yeah, another another I think challenge we're facing is just is reach. And so, for example, for the Honduras white paper, I mean, I was very proud of that. And then we didn't get as much discussion. And I think that was largely, I mean, to a certain extent, chance, right? Like if we just get one good person writing about it, then you can get the sort of contagion effect. And then partially also just, I mean, maybe there were certain things we could have done with the paper, right? Like we didn't put out a one page summary. We just had this no, no, what, 15 page, 20 page thing. And so I think figuring out how more effectively to to get our message out there is, is another key. Yeah. How hard is it to get people to pay attention to, to these kinds of issues? Do you have to really like hone your content marketing and come up with great headlines and things like that? You know, I think, and we're sort of learning this in real time. I think Lots of news organizations kind of have their general priorities. And something that we struggle with is that it's very true that here in the U.S. specifically, we are really enraptured with our own politics. And that is, I think, for some really good reasons and also some sort of not fully justifiable reasons. So there are always sort of big news items that you're contending with when you have this sort of really niche issue that's always going to be on the map. 
but not always at the forefront of people's attention. Yeah, if someone wants to get more involved, they're like, they listen to this and like, yeah, charter cities sounds like a killer idea. This is, this is a great way to reduce poverty or experiment with, with better kinds of government or organizations. How can they do it? What's, what's, the, what's the top level summary? I, I mean, it obviously depends on the person. So the, the ways, one, I mean, you can just get in touch with us. Like, right, we have a contact page on our website and we're happy to give advice based on that. In addition, right, like the sort of, I think roles that are important to fill are if we're thinking of early career, like college students, right? Like one, do a PhD in economics or law, and then be able to sort of contribute on that margin. You could also think of, for example, doing like two years in management consulting and building out a skill set there that is widely applicable. The, some of the most valuable people are people who are reasonably well connected in their home countries that have the potential to have a charter city. And so those people uh, that I think we can right, like empower them to understand what a charter city is and, and, and put them in contact, hopefully like right, get, them, get them some presence and help them to, to begin to be our local contact on the ground there, as well as, I mean, right, like donating to us always helps. We love that. Yeah. And I also think that just for, it's great to have evangelists out there. So people talking about charter cities. I love when, for example, I'm just going to shout out somebody really quickly. There's a great student. His name is Spencer Schneier, and he is currently a senior at um, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And a couple of weeks ago, he just asked, okay, if Walt Disney were to create a charter city, what would that look like? And all of a sudden, my feed was full of people talking about how Disney World was actually one of the first charter cities. Uh, and then from that, you know, Mark started, Mark asked, whose charter city, which historical figures charter city would you most like to see? And I say all of this only to say, it's great when you have, uh, like if we can filter down sort of the knowledge of charter cities, I think it makes a lot of the other things that we do easier, right? So it's not the case that, for example, every single college student is going to show up and suddenly run a charter city. But I think it is great for people to know what charter cities are. And in some ways, this is us expanding the Overton window of policy options. And one way you do that is by sort of like mimetic value. So yeah. And, and then I guess for the mid-career people who might be listening, I mean, I think specific interesting things that, that might help. I mean, if, for example, you're in development and your organization might be interested in charter cities, uh, right? Like we're having a conference. Let's see if you want to attend. If you like, right, work in real estate and are developing large real estate projects, uh, you're interested in governance reforms. That is also quite helpful. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, reach out, get in touch. Let's, let's figure out what makes sense and let, let's start those conversations. And I think, yeah, even just asking the question, as Mark mentioned earlier, so Mark's email is mark at innovativegovernance.org. Mine is Tamara at innovativegovernance.org. It's not the case that people have to listen to this conversation and then like want to get involved immediately, but a great place to, to sort of plug in would be just to send us an email and we can talk further. Yeah. Is there a conference where people can, can come meet you guys? Is there, is there a Charter Cities event? Oh, I suppose you're saying there's one in October, right? Uh, yeah, that's the first, like our big international coming out party. We expect to probably have like, right, we're going to start setting up meetups in DC. And occasionally when we're in San Francisco, we also do meetups and we're probably going to start doing more events in DC. Uh, though the big, it's not even, we haven't set up the website yet, but October 2nd and 3rd in Johannesburg is the big one that we have a date decided on for. Yeah, you said you want like people who've done economics or law. Do you also want kind of civil engineers or people who like understand cities? Are they like potentially also good hires here? One of the reasons why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley, it's not because of low taxes. Um, it's basically because there is a, a network of like VPs and chief executives that um, or C-level staff that have experience in hypergrowth, like right, bringing a company from 50 to 500 people. And that's a relatively small set. There's probably a few hundred people who have that experience who are able to execute it well. And that is combined with like several other important aspects has been enough to keep 
Silicon Valley as Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley probably produces more unicorns than the rest of the country combined. Uh, and so Muya, for example, asked me seven, eight months ago, like, do you know a VP who can like help build Nakwashi? And I was just like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But I mean, because, right, like we're a little bit more naturally focused on the uh, like sort of governance aspects, but all of the build out aspects are important as well, including like civil engineers, people with real estate experience, people with supply chain management experience uh, are, 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 are quite important to bring out and, and to get involved. Yeah, I guess we're often pretty short on uh, career suggestions for people who want to live in countries like Honduras or, or Zambia or, or Kenya or wherever else. Could you give it like a bit more information about like what concretely people could do there? And I guess what kinds of like more senior people perhaps are you, are you interested in talking to there who someone might be able to connect you to? The senior people, I think, uh, specifically are people who have experience basically with large infrastructure projects. So either like a large real estate development or industrial park or, or something like that. So I think one of the really exciting things about Nkwashi specifically, and I think it's difficult to talk about these charter cities in a broad base because each of them is going to have their own sort of economic base. But Nkwashi is building a university, and I think that's going to capture a lot of young, smart, enterprising Zambians who are really interested in sort of being part of the future of their country's development. So I would tell them to kind of keep their eye out on Nkwashi. Um, but I also know that the University of Maryland has a, a research center out there, so that might be something worth exploring exploring for them. It's in Lusaka, in the capital. Yeah, I guess that, that place is going to have a website that, I could, that we can stick a link it to. It already has a website. Okay. So Nkwashi, to, the way to spell it, <laughs> it's an African spelling, so it's always difficult for people, but it's nkwashi.com, nkwashi.com. Are there any like opportunities for people to get rich doing this if they get involved in like buying this land or investing in it? And Very rich. Sell, sell, the, sell the richness side, uh, that's both of you. Like, yeah, because it seems like at the moment, you're kind of relying on people getting involved in this, or like so far, we've talked about people getting involved in it because they want to do good. But what about people who just want to get get loaded? Uh, imagine buying land in Shenzhen 40 years ago. Imagine buying land in Hong Kong 60 years ago. I mean, buying land in New York. I don't know, like 400 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but um, right, like the urbanization is happening extremely rapidly, and uh, depending on the country. So, for example, Africa, there is urbanization without industrialization. Um, so the land prices are probably not going to increase as rapidly as in countries that have industrialized very rapidly, unless you have a charter city and then you do actually industrialize and increase output. I mean, that's, I think one of the selling points of charter cities is that they have this financing mechanism. And if you get in at the early stages on a good project, I mean, these are right. Like building a city is a like multi-million, multi-billion dollar real estate proposition. Yeah. When we got the chance to meet with uh, a former executive at one of the largest urban development companies in Sub-Saharan Africa, I was surprised to learn that the land and some of their projects had appreciated 10 to 15% a year, which for somebody who's looking for a, you know, not sort of quick um, investment, but for an investment for the medium term, medium to long term, that's an incredible return. Yeah. Wh why not Why not push that angle a little bit more, like uh, focus on it as, as a business? I guess you were working in asset management before, uh, but it sounded like that there just weren't enough investment opportunities. So I guess you're now trying to create the pipeline for like other people to, to invest in it from asset management? A little bit. The, the current binding constraint to charter cities is politics. And to solve politics, uh, NGO is the best way to do that, right? You, you, can't get a pi you can't get a pipeline for charter cities unless there is a common understanding of what charter cities are, and currently there is not. So first, the challenge is basically solve politics. And then the challenge is going to be to solve talent, like who is the local talent on the ground who's leading, and also finance. So currently we're focused on politics. Soon we might transition. Uh, like what kinds of uh, roles can you see yourself uh, advertising and trying to hire for over the, over the next couple of years? 
So the roles that we are currently looking for are one, a director of external affairs to basically help build out relationships with a lot of the um, multilateral organizations and development organizations. We're in the early stage, not hiring, but maybe if we found the right candidate, we actually could pull the trigger a director of development to basically help start building out our fundraising capability. Ideally, somebody who is in, in international development and has a lot of experience with grant writing for um, these philanthropic organizations. Those are the two immediate roles. I mean, we're going to hire uh, more junior roles as well. Um, including, uh, I mean, people, research uh, assistance, uh, things like that. At some point, we'll want a director of charter cities um, in addition to like a director of operations. Uh, with, with any luck, I mean, we should be the office of six, seven people by the end of the year and, and keep staffing up as, as we grow. So obviously, you're like a pretty small organ in the scheme of things, and it probably isn't enough uh, jobs for everyone who might be interested in this. Are there any other organizations that uh, either are like really good to go work for now or potentially like good stepping stones that people are like thinking that, oh, I want to work on charter cities in a couple of years time. But like, what, what can I do in the meantime while while this uh, while this hot project gets gets larger? It, it depends on what your skill set is. But uh, the ones that I would recommend are basically uh, international development organizations. So I think the policy expertise is important. So for example, Brookings Center for Global Development, um, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, the Growth Center, International Growth Center. In addition, for example, getting experience working for governments could be important because that brings a lot of credibility. So if you have the opportunity to get senior experience working for governments in low-income countries, um, that would be beneficial uh, to real estate, where they get real estate experience, actually building out projects themselves, the financial management experience, so you know right, like what inter- drives international capital flows. Yeah, and I would also just continue to add the large-scale infrastructure. I think that's a, a skill that's going to be incredibly valuable, um, and it's probably underrated here. Yeah, what's what's enjoyable about this career path and what's not enjoyable about it? You know, again, our stated goal, right? Like if we get this right, we're going to help lift. When? (laughs) Thank you. True politician. (laughs) Tens of millions of people out of poverty. And, you know, I'm from Lagos, Nigeria, and we were supposed to vote. We. uh, (laughs) uh, Nigerians were supposed to vote last Saturday, and that got postponed, right? That was essentially like an act of, at the very best, mass disenfranchisement. I think you see sort of the, the real costliness of poor governance. And I think it's incredible to think where we're going to be in, in 10, 20 years. But I also think on the day to day, we just have a lot of fun. It's interesting. Like, it's really exciting for me to just continue to learn. Again, I started this job four months ago. There's so much I didn't know. Um, and there's so much I'm still learning every single day, right? Just today, I learned that 80% of African migrants don't ever leave the continent, but that's not what you see in uh, sort of the coverage of different migrant crises. So I really enjoy just getting to learn from people in all sorts of fields who know way more than I do. I think that's like really personally rewarding. Like my long-term focus is good, but I have the attention span of a goldfish. Part of the reason why I like this, right, I did not do very well in graduate school because being able to sit down and write for extended periods isn't great. But part of why I like this is I'm doing tasks that I'm actually like much more mentally suited for. But also like I think why this is enjoyable. I mean, one, as, as Tammy mentioned, like, right, this has like the potential to have just like an in, in incredible impact. Um, like I literally believe that we are probably going to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. Like I will view myself as a failure if I don't. Two, it's just like in terms of interacting with people, it's like just the level of people who we are able to communicate with and get access to is is amazing. I mean, I spend my like life hanging out with people much smarter than me who like do very interesting things. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's fantastically fun. And having something you do that you care very deeply about is incredibly rewarding. I've been trying to goad one of you into saying what's not enjoyable about this though, but uh, I'll be honest. Okay. I think that generally I have a 
a particularly, or not a particularly, but a pretty specific idea of what like a good life looks like. So for the past couple of months, like my Instagram has been better than ever, right? Like I'm in Zambia, I'm in South Africa, in California, (laughs) but you do, I think, miss your friends back home and your family. And so there is like this cost of being on the road. Life doesn't stop when you're not there. So, you know, people continue sort of building relationships and forming communities and community is something that really drives my life. So I feel like when I leave places, I I get to take it with me, right? Like I call my sister pretty much every day, but it is, I think, kind of challenging to be so far away from home so much of the time. And I also think sometimes because this vision is so, you know, it is kind of a long-term thing. You have those days when you're, you just don't think that there's any way that it could happen. I don't have those anymore, but I do have those days when it does feel like if I'm just, you know, filling out paperwork or something, I'm very far away from actually doing the work that lifts tens of millions of people out of poverty. So it's maintaining that sort of long-term focus and finding ways to feel rewarded in the moment. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, right. Like, I mean, for the first year I didn't pay myself starting an organization, you eat a lot of shit. Uh, and we're going to continue to eat a lot of shit. Uh, and I mean, right. Like I held an event in San Francisco and I spent $8,000 on dinner and like 30% of the people I wanted to show up showed up. I was like, Oh, I'm not paying myself yet. I just went to debt $8,000 through <laughs> 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 dinner that like the people I wanted to show up to didn't really show up to like, damn it, this sucks. And you have to like realize that you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Like the optimal failure rate is not zero. You're going to do a lot of things that you didn't want to do. Uh, you're going to end up making decisions that piss people off. You're going to get in fights. I mean, Tammy and I have gotten in several fights. And one of the first ones, she like right apologized. She was like, that won't happen again. And I was like, yes, it will. <laughs> um, and like, that's okay. Uh, and you have to move forward. But it's right. Like this isn't all flowers and sunshine. Like you are going to, I don't know if you watch The Wire, but there's the the mayor gets elected. Mm. And Cost the first Eddie. day it's, yeah, uh, it's what is this? And his advisor's like, this is your first bowl of shit um, and you have to eat it. And that's what you're going to do. And right. Like that's, that's going to happen. But I mean, that's okay because it's worth it. There've been like several things that we applied for that we can't like talk about right now, but like we just got some really great news and this specific thing we'd applied for uh, was three times, three times or so. And that's just like one example of just something that worked out, even though the first couple of times it was really frustrating that it didn't. So I'm really bullish on us. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of innovation, I think, in the nonprofit sector. Like the rate of like formation of new nonprofits who are doing something that's different than what other nonprofits are doing is uh, is pretty low. What other kind of um, new nonprofits or like new ideas for nonprofits would would you like to see actually implemented in the in, in, in the real world? One of the biggest isn't nonprofits per se, but in the nonprofit space, I think like our luck with foundations has not been good, and I think a lot of foundations are oriented in a way that is not very well structured for new nonprofits and new ideas. They're just too conservative? Basically. Um, So for example, Tyler Cowen has Emergent Ventures, which basically tries to go against this. But uh, for example, some nonprofits, it's like, okay, we'll give you a grant for two years, but you need to account for like every thousand dollars and you need to like, right, have this mapped out before you get it. And if you can imagine, right, you're a startup and you go to a venture capitalists and right they're like all right we'll give you this money but you need like every thousand dollars for the next two years mapped out right like it's not realistic um and i mean similarly it's like all right got a message and like right one foundation was asking mike do you have any financial audits it's like no (laughs) 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 like i can send you like i can send you the 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 like intuit whatever it is like quickbooks we use but like we're not gonna get like an outside firm to audit us i mean that's that's it's it's fundamentally ridiculous at this early stage and they've basically i think a lot of foundations have like are, are at the point where they just have a lot of more experience and more comfort dealing with 
large organizations that, I mean, our, our donor base is basically entirely high net worth individuals. And that is, um, right, like basically general operations budget that it allows us to make mistakes, that allows us to like build out and figure it out that a lot of the traditional funding spheres don't allow. Yeah, I agree with that totally. I used to actually between uh, working at Mercatus and coming to the center, I worked at an organization called Stand Together, and they do venture philanthropy. And when they're funding groups, uh, they work with groups that are doing great things to alleviate poverty all across the United States. And one of the they fund two different reasons. The first one is they're working with groups that have great impacts. And as I don't have to explain to you, there's a lot of different nonprofits just to have no way of measuring what they're doing or have no idea if they have any sort of impact. But the second way they fund is with groups that are doing something really innovative or experimental. And I think it's great because you give these groups that don't already have this sort of proven record of outcomes because they're doing something experimental. And I would like to see that funding model applied in more spaces. Do you have any ideas for, uh, you know, wannabe nonprofit entrepreneurs in the audience? One piece of advice to give uh, potential nonprofit founders is just, I mean, have the idea like very well defined. And so I believe it was Balaji Srinivasan who came up with this. And I think it's like a mind maze and uses it in, in the for-profit space. But basically, right, you're not going to know like what you're going to do for the next four years, but you shouldn't have any idea of what the decision tree is, right? Like you should know the history of that space. You should know what groups have come before, like what they did right, how you're different, all of that stuff. And right, like you don't know everything you're going to do, but you know approximately the things that you're going to face and like the decisions that you're going to make based on how you face them. And if you don't have like that, those ideas fairly well established and set up i mean just don't do it right like running a nonprofit is extremely hard and if there's not something you care very deeply about that you have a unique insight that nobody else has that can add a lot of value then find a, a job at an organization that's a better fit have the funding model set up like right who is the donor base how you're never going to know this before you start but the uh, nonprofits need to have revenue sources and so have a decent idea of what that revenue source is and so to this end, there are a lot of great organizations that are baking in now social enterprises. And I think that's really great because it aligns the incentives. You know, you have this sort of funding source um, and you see lots of social enterprises and things relating to like children's organizations. So where I'm from in Dallas, there's a great organization called Cafe Momentum and they work with youth and they the youth actually work in the cafe and they make money. And so it's like run by like a really amazing chef in Dallas. So I think that is a potentially underexplored model. But I also think one thing that is underexplored in the nonprofit space is the power of creating communities out of people. Um, so at Stand Together, one of my, I think my favorite orgs was an organization called the Phoenix. And they work with people who are um, battling addictions of some sort. And they don't do sort of any sort of clinical uh, work, but they just create communities and they work primarily with like physical obstacles. So um, they've got outposts all over the country and their founder, Scott Strode himself, um, battled addiction. He's been sober for, I think, 15 or so years. He was a CNN hero of the year. And they have twice the the um, sort of success of the best clinical programs. And it's specifically because they prioritize community. And I think in different contexts, that looks different. But just the power of changing who people are around and giving them sort of a community, not just to be involved in, but to be accountable to, um, seems to do really powerful things as opposed to sort of like telling people this is how you should change and like hoping they do it. It sounds like they were trying to like get people like more of a community and more friends in order to help them overcome addiction. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, uh, they've got all sorts of videos online and I would definitely encourage people to look them up. It's called The Phoenix. They had people who met their spouses in the program. But yeah, the sort of core innovation was just 
offering people a community to which they could be belong. And, and that came with, with that came all of the obligations of, of entering into a community. And we got to go on a hike with them. And it's just really powerful to see how it works uh, in person. I have to look at the research, like know how, know how effective that is. But I think an interesting bias that exists is um, it's very hard to programmatize friendship and to like offer it as a service that like seems like it's a legitimate and like valuable thing to provide. Like so, even, yeah, even if it's just like connecting people to like have good conversations is is actually the best treatment for addiction. You could imagine that it wouldn't get up because it doesn't seem interesting enough. It doesn't seem technical enough for people to actually pay to like to, to deliver that. I think that there could be like a bias in that direction when people want something that's more interesting rather than perhaps the thing that's like so boring or so obvious that it's like how is this even program. It's funny though, because I think that, I mean, something I hear all the time in San Francisco is if you want to change your habits, just understand that you are sort of the the average um, of all the people around you. Right. And so doesn't it seem obvious that there wouldn't be, it's amazing to me that there aren't more models in, not just in nonprofits, but just in like the tech space uh, that are based on this explicit concept that you are the average of everybody that you hang out with and sort of scaling that. It has a slightly dark implication that you kind of want to go and hang out with people who are better than you in order to, or like, who have like better habits than you, and then, then you'll uh, like leech them away from them, but like you'll be harming them subtly by like being around them. Because it's like it's hard for people to get ahead if they're just like averaging across across all of the people. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Was there anything you wanted to just uh, say to, to finish this section on like motivating people to, to to get involved and if if they're like kind of on the fence about whether whether they want to actually move forward with with charter cities? So I mean, just right, like follow us. Uh, we have a Facebook, we have Twitter, we have a newsletter. Um, if you're on the fence, keep paying attention and hopefully that we convince you that this is worthwhile. Um, we put out content and we are doing things, uh, and the interest in the space is growing. So also you should get in early because right. Like the earlier you get in the higher, like on the acceleration path you are. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about asymmetric risk, right? There's a huge upside here. And I think the downside is particularly if you are uh, just starting your career as I am very low. So I think you should just go for it. And that's kind of my motto in life for at least this period of life. Uh, just before you go, uh, Tamara, I, I couldn't couldn't help but see that on your Twitter feed when I was uh, researching for this episode that <laughs> you, you say that you're a, a pro-natalist. Um, I guess I know quite a lot of uh, anti-natalists, uh, and I guess I guess I, I know I know of a few uh, pro-natalists, but I guess I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, yeah, what I guess what is pro-natalism for the audience, and 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 why you why you a backer of it so much that you put it on your on your Twitter bio. So I come from a really large family and I also didn't get to grow up around them. And so my bias is for like, I think I wonder how my life might've been different just growing up with my 40 plus cousins. And I think just generally people are the world's best resource, right? So more people, uh, not fewer and just more ideas. The potential of any one person is incredible. And I also think what's important about pronatalism is not just people having more kids, but also building a culture in which you can bring in new life, right? It's amazing that we're having this conversation in San Francisco. As I was walking earlier, I saw a baby and got shocked uh, because San Francisco has almost like designed itself to be inhospitable to children. So it's not just um, encouraging people to have more children, although if you're listening to this, you should probably have more children, but it's also building a, a society which allows for children to exist in public without, you know, people freaking out that they're there. And the thing you'll find is that if you build a society that actually takes children into account, what you've done is design a society that's great for people with disabilities and the elderly. So it's not even just pronatalism, but it's how can we sort of revive this idea that civilization is not just the people who are alive right now, who are in like the prime of their lives, but the people who came before us and the people who are going to come after us. That's, I think, what, what drives me. 
Maybe at some point you guys will have built so many cities that you'll need to like get people to have more babies just to populate them. It turns out that's really hard to do, <laughs> to encourage people to have more children, but I'll let you know if we figure it out. <laughs> All right. My guests today have been uh, Mark and Tamara. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, guys. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. As always, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're looking for another episode to listen to, you can go to the show notes now and uh, click through to the interview I did on The Good Life with uh, Andrew Lee. Uh, We talk a bit about how I got involved in effective altruism and just general advice I have on on how to have an enjoyable uh, and successful life. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.